This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. You may have heard me talk on this show before about the valley of the shadow of debt. That's right. Most young people, they get to the edge of a precipice. They see across the other side opportunity. They see, they're hearing all the time about the amazing things being done, businesses being started, apps being built, software, hardware, you name it. There's opportunity everywhere and businesses are hungry. They see it, but they're looking over a canyon. They're looking across college chasm. They look down to the bottom of that chasm and there's all these colleges and universities and they're supposed to go way down there into the muck, into the valley of the shadow of debt and get stuck for five plus years on average and walk away with an average of $37,000 in debt. Oh, and not only that, but 62% of graduates are either unemployed or working in jobs that didn't require a degree anyway. So after five years and $37,000 of debt that you can never get rid of, you're working in a job that you could have gotten without it, something's not right. Skip the valley of the shadow of debt. Praxis builds a bridge directly to those opportunities right now today. And if you're already in that valley, don't worry. We can help you too. We can throw you a lifeline. We can pull you up right now. If you already graduated college, don't think about grad school until you've gotten into the real world. If you're a couple years in and you're bored, Don't fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy and think that because you've wasted some time and money, you've got to waste more. Get out now, get into an amazing career at an amazing startup, learn more about yourself in the world than you ever could down in that valley. Praxis is the bridge to get you from where you are to a life that you love. Our mission, our why, the reason we exist is to help young people discover and do what makes them come alive. And we can do it better, faster, cheaper than anything else. Discoverpraxis.com. Check it out today. All right, today on the show, I am thrilled to have Lenny McGill. Now, if you know that name, it's either because you are a gun enthusiast or a competitive shooter, or it could be, if you're not one of those, that you have heard the name McGill on previous episodes when Derek McGill, the marketing director for Praxis, has joined us. And yes, Derek is related to Lenny. Derek is his son. So, But Lenny's claim to fame, he has been in the firearms industry for almost 30 years. He is the founder and CEO of Glock Store, which is the largest retailer of Glock Um, weapons, accessories, uh, and parts in the world. They serve over 250,000 customers in their online store alone. They have a beautiful facility in San Diego. He's very well known in the uh, shooting community. He's been doing videos, instructional videos on self-defense and much, much more for many, many years. So um, I'm really excited to uh, to have you on the show, Lenny. Well, thank you, Isaac. Uh, You know, I I, I do want to... uh, Say first off, it's a pleasure to be here. But uh, interestingly enough, I'm kind of the uh, uh, poster child for what you're you're professing because I think my pathway uh, will show your listeners that um, uh, you know I, I I took a very non-traditional approach, which is becoming more traditional, uh, to get to where I am now. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So I, when I looked you up on LinkedIn, um, I saw there was a brief period. We'll talk, we'll talk about where you sold cable TV, uh, which looks kind of fun, <laughs> before cable TV was was big. But you're starting with your your education, sort of your youth and, and educational background. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I grew up in a uh, fairly um, uh, nice middle class environment, and, and you know I have to kind of preface that with this. My father. Uh, is uh, a physician. He's a doctor. He's a general practitioner. He's actually uh, about 84 years old, and he's still practicing. Uh, he works uh, four 12-hour days at an emergency clinic uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. Actually, uh, you know, just outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. Um, uh, when I was born, uh, my father at that time was actually selling vacuum cleaners uh, uh, for um, uh, a company in, in Harrisburg, and, and he realized that you know his life was kind of going nowhere. Uh, he had gone in the Marine Corps, came out of the Marine Corps, and uh, decided you know that he would get, get a job. And, and meanwhile, he, he kind of woke up one day. He was basically uh, uh, 24 years old, had three kids, and, and thought, oh my gosh, what, what's going to happen here? So you know, he was a smart enough guy. He realized, you know what, I, I think I want to become a doctor. So imagine that, that he's uh, uh, three, he's got three children. Uh, he's, you know, not, doesn't have a lot of money, came from a very, you know, uh, you know, low economic background. And uh, he decided, hey, I want to be a doctor. And, uh, and so he put himself through uh, medical school. And it's very interesting. He's got a good story, too. He, he basically told me that, you know, he, he did uh, uh, three years at Dickinson College and he graduated the four-year program in three years because uh, he just worked his butt off. And uh, he, meanwhile, had a job. Uh, my mother worked and uh, we were you know, pretty poor at that point. We lived with my uh, father's uh, uh, mother in Harrisburg. Uh, then um, he uh, got accepted to Temple uh, University in the medical school program down there. We moved down to Philadelphia and, and again, lived with another family uh, while he went to medical school. And uh, that was uh, right around uh, 1964 or something like that way back then. And, and then uh, uh, four, you know, four years later, after uh, he graduated, uh, we literally, our lives changed, you know, he became, you know, a doctor and, you know, so we, we moved into a nice house in a nice neighborhood with, uh, you know, a pool down the street and a country club over here. And, and all of a sudden it was like, wow, you know, I mean, my, you know, so my, the first eight years of my life were, you know, pretty poor and, you know, but you know, I didn't even know that when you're a kid, you don't really realize that. Yeah. But all of a sudden, you know, we had new clothes and we had a new car and we had a new house and you know, we lived in a nice neighborhood and, and, you know, it's like, wow, I, I can see the difference. And, and so uh, I, I was lucky enough to be in a nice neighborhood and, and went to a good high school and, uh, you know, really learned a lot in high school. I had some great teachers. And uh, one teacher in particular was an English teacher who taught us how to write. Uh, she was very strict and very adamant about that. And, and so that was one skill that I, uh, I learned at an early age. And I remember eighth grade, you know, I was a smart guy. You know, I, I scored well and all that stuff. I had great grades and I was, you know, kind of coasting through high school. But she pushed us and she really taught us how to learn and in particular how to write and how to uh, uh, read effectively and understand the, 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 how sentences were formed and uh, how to tell a story. And so uh, that was something that was really interesting because I noticed now that uh, of all the kids who went through her, there's a lot of writers and magazine editors and all kind of, all these friends that I grew up with are really in some interesting positions. And it was a lot of this based upon her. So 
that being said, uh, you know, I went to high school and, and I, I, you know, I was kind of bored of high school. I, I, um, uh, and I like a lot of your listeners probably who are, you know, smarter than the average bear. And I consider myself smarter than the average bear. Um, you know, high school wasn't that challenging and I was, you know, not a great, uh, I was, I had great grades, but I wasn't a good student. I mean, I didn't, I didn't show up in class a lot. I missed a lot of days. It was, you know, I look at back on that big, well, I really wasted a lot of that effort, <laughs> but you know, I was smarter than I thought I was, you know, in, in a sense. And, and, you know, I mean, I, I guess I thought I was smarter than I was, you know, I, I, I didn't make the most of that experience. But meanwhile, I got good grades. And so I applied to different colleges and my father had gone to Temple and I thought, well, I'll just go to Temple too. And I guess I'll become a doctor too, because it looks like it's a pretty good lifestyle. And so I went to a year at Temple College, uh, Temple University, excuse me, in Philadelphia. And um, after looking at that uh, whole process and, and being part of that big wheel there and, and really just kind of being out there by myself. And meanwhile, my parents were getting divorced and, you know, a couple of, you know, socioeconomic things happening. I finally realized, you know, I, I just don't enjoy this process. I don't enjoy school. I, I don't enjoy, you know, the, these huge classes. I was going to show up these classes and there were literally 400 people in a class and no one knew you were there or not. And it just didn't seem to be, you know, the thing that I wanted to do for the rest of my, you know, four to six years or, or eight years there. Uh, what's interesting, though, is my brother is a doctor. He's a very accomplished physician. Uh, and I'm going to tell you that the stories, you know, the, how our lives, you know, kind of car, uh, correspond in a sense. So, so my brother went through the traditional program. After a year at Temple, I dropped out. I said, I just can't do it. I can't go to school. I, I just, you know, I, I don't feel connected and I don't see the end result. I, I, I wanted to do so much more, you know, and versus like I, I felt I was kind of getting pigeonholed into certain things and you have to take this to go here and you have to do this to do that. And it just was like, well, gee, there's so much more that I can do. Uh, so uh, was, I, it, I was, it hard for your, was it hard for your parents when you dropped out? You know, my father was totally disappointed. You know, I mean, he was like, oh, my gosh, you know, you know, because his his pathway was, you know, you have to go to school to get an education to be to become somebody. And, and you know, I, I grew up with a lot of uh, in my neighborhood. There were a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, doctors and lawyers and engineers, but there were also a lot of business owners. And, you know, my father, you know, literally worked his butt off. And one of the interesting things he said to me at an early age, he kept saying to me, he says, you know, he says, I don't make any money unless I'm in front of a patient. So we would rarely go on vacation because it wasn't the cost of the vacation. It was the cost of the money he missed while he was away. Mm -hmm. He would say, oh, man, I'm going to miss, you know, $10,000, which is a lot of money back in the 60s, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's, it's that week of being away. It wasn't the fact that the vacation cost, you know, $6,000. It's just that he was going to miss that income from being away from work. Whereas my business owner buddies, their fathers led a much more, I would say, relaxed life in a sense. And they worked, but the business worked for them. Yeah. And they didn't work for the business. And so my father, you know, he, and he was quick to point that out. He says, you know, gee, I, I, you know, he, he was smart enough to say, you know, I, I can't make any money unless I'm in front of someone. Whereas, you know, my buddy down the street, he's, you know, owns uh, three uh, laundromats and, uh, you know, he, he makes money whether he's there or not because people are putting quarters in those machines, whether he's there or not. So an interesting uh, fact, you know, kind of just, that was one of the things that he told me. And I never forgot that. And I remember when I was at Temple, I thought, wow, do I, do I want to be that lifestyle? And I thought, no, I, I think the business side, you know, I want the business to work for me. I want it to be able to make uh, me money and not me have to always be there. Mm -hmm. So that's the pathway I, I decided to take. I, I actually quit school and moved to California. My parents freaked out. Uh, you know, I was kind of, you know, uh, you know, young and dumb and just thought, hey, I'm going to move to California. And uh, my dad's pretty old school, you know, so he was like, okay, well, you know, good luck. <laughs> you know, and I was like, 
I was like, well, uh, you know, there's no money. He said, yeah, I'm not going to pay for your stuff. He said, you can make it, you know, just do it, you know. And, and so that was actually a good lesson, you know, is, okay, you, you know, you're on your own. So I, I had uh, borrowed a, uh, a girl's car who actually lived out here. I knew from high school. I drove her car out to California. I dropped her car off to her and uh, literally had uh, one friend out here and uh, stayed in the apartment with them and, and had no clue what I was going to do. So I, you know, got a job at uh, at a Bob's Big Boy restaurant, and uh, it was very humbling. You know, I uh, I became uh, a, a cook uh, at uh, Bob's Big Boy, and it was uh, pretty you know, sad. You know, to be honest, I was you know wasn't making a whole lot of money, but you know, hey, I was I was working, and um, I used to take the bus to work. And one day I was driving the bus to work, and and the thing I noticed at, at the at the restaurant is I said. You know, here I'm making a cook and I'm making minimum wage, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm doing a good job and you like me and all that stuff. But uh, I noticed that the, the, the waitresses would always have a pile of cash at the end of the day. They're making tips. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good program. Now, this is back in, you know, the early 70s. And uh, they had waitresses. They didn't have waiters at that restaurant. That was just not going to happen. They wanted to have waitresses. Uh, but... Uh, uh, you know, nowadays, you know, that would be sexist. But uh, <laughs> so I was taking a bus to work one day and we drove past a, a, the bus going through a, a shopping mall. And as one of the stops while I was on the, on the way to my work and uh, I saw a sign in the window and the sign in the window said, uh, help wanted waiters. And, uh, and I thought, wow, that waiters, that's, that's, hey, the waiter, that's, and it was a, a little ice cream place called Farrell's Ice Cream, of all places, you know, so I thought, well, okay, so next day I got off of that stop, I went in and applied, and the, um, the owner, well, the manager there, uh, you know, he liked me, he was from the East Coast, I was from the East Coast, we kind of connected, and I said, uh, you know, I really want to be a waiter, and he goes, well, he says, I'm sorry, you know, uh, you know, typically, you know, we put that ad out there just to get some people in, typically we start you off as a busboy or as a cook, and then you'll move up into the waiter position after four or five or six months. And I go, well, you know what? I said, I'm already a cook and I can't stand it. And I want to be a waiter. And I think I do a great job for you. He goes, well, so let me ask you a question. He said, are you in college at all? I said, and I thought that was, you know, kind of a loaded question. And I thought, well, uh, no, I'm not in college. I, you know, kind of sheepishly said, no, I'm not. He's just good. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, a lot of college kids, you know, they don't want to work weekends, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, they're, they, they'll work weeknights, but they want to have their weekends free. And they had a lot of college kids who are waiters there, you know, working, uh, you know, part-time jobs. And I said, look, I'll work Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you know, and I'll, uh, I'll work Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. And that's the night times when the busy time was. And I said, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be here whenever you want me to be, you know, I mean, I'll be your, I'll be your guy. And he goes, okay, tell you what, I'll make you a waiter. He said, you know, the other guys aren't going to like it, but, you know, because you're going to move ahead of some of these cooks and busboys. He said, but I'll make you a waiter because I, I really want you to be, you know, uh, a guy that I can rely on on Friday, Saturday, Sundays. And again, the, the, what's really interesting, and I want your listeners to, to follow this story because it's a long one now. I'm going to keep on going. But, you know, that connection with the individual was the most important thing that I learned right there. He, I, I sold him on me. That's all it was. It was just he and I. And I told him, this is what I want to do. This is what I can do for you. I can, I can solve your problem. And so he put me in there. And um, I literally, I mean, I, I tripled my income uh, it, it, like overnight because this was a very busy restaurant. And it was right next to a, a, a movie theater back when there was just, you know, one big theater there. You know, it didn't have the multiplex. It was one big theater. But that, that summer, and, and, you know, it was, I think, uh, the debut of Jaws, <laughs> the original Jaws. 
and it was packed. There were lines out the door into the restaurant because people would go to the movie and, and come into the restaurant or they'd come to the restaurant and then go to the movie. And it was just packed. Did, did you I have would, any like particular tricks that you learned to help you get more tips? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I learned, I learned real quickly a couple of things. And, and, um, you know, you'll see the good waiters do this now, pay attention. Uh, you know, when you're in a restaurant, you'll see how people can turn tables. That's the whole key. So the key was to turn tables fast. And I was a hustler, you know, I'm a smart guy. I, I gotta be honest. You know I mean? I, I hustled and I, and for, for whatever reason, my take on the West coast versus the East coast is the West coast guys were kind of slackers, you know, they were slow and they were you know nice, <laughs> but they just weren't hustling, you know? Yes. So they, they put me in the big section cause I hustled tables through and the trick would be that people would come in and you would, you would, you know, take their order, serve the restaurant. And then, you know, people tend to want to sit around and talk a little bit, which ties up your table. And that's not good for the line, not good for the gross of the restaurant, not good for your tips. So the trick is, is to bust the table while they sit there to take ownership of the table away from them. See, they own the table and all the stuff's around there. So as soon as they're done, you take their plates off. And as soon as they're done with their this, you take that off. And eventually you're taking their water glasses off at the point where they say, oh, geez, we got time to go. There's nothing here. <laughs> and so I learned that pretty quick. And so I could hustle people through these things. And, uh, and I was turning, uh, you know, 100 tables, you know, uh, a, a shift. And they loved me. The management loved me, man. I tell you, they would be all over. Oh, look at McGill. Look at him. Look at what he's doing. Oh, my gosh. And they would, you know, point us out. And, but I was making, uh, you know, a buck, two bucks a table in tips. They were small tickets. You know, they were, you know, because it was an ice cream shop, you know, the Farrell's ice cream, but they served, uh, you know, uh, hamburgers and, you know, French fries and that kind of stuff. And then they had ice cream was the big push. Uh, and so um, uh, the um, interesting thing about that is that, you know, I started making, you know, $100, $200 a night in tips hmm. and as well as the minimum wage. And so I was making at literally uh, 19 years old, I was making... Fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year back in nineteen seventy six, seventy seven. Wow! And so that was a lot of money. And what's interesting now, two things. There's really, there's, there's really interesting. So here I am at the at this restaurant. I'm hustling, doing all this. And the uh, the managers come up, you know, one day and they pull me aside before the shift. Hey, McGill, we want to meet with you. You know, there's the the manager, the guy that I knew, my buddy, and then there was the general manager of multiple stores. There were like five of these in San Diego County, and. Um, they, you know, hey, we think you're doing a great job. You know, we really would like you to, you know, consider a position in management. And I said, well, what's involved in that? He goes, well, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of a step up. You know, you're going to do, you know, you're going to be in charge of some people. You can, you know, uh, you know, sign some schedules and, you know, you all this, you know, great stuff. And, you know, then eventually you can, you know, get your own store, you know, and you can manage your own store. And I kind of looked at him. I said, well, yeah, okay. So, you know, what are you paying the managers? Well, you know, we start the managers at $35,000 a year. And I said, well, hmm, okay. I said, I'm kind of making more than that now. <laughs> and, and, you know, my shift is from, you know, I come in at five and I go home at 1130 when the restaurant's closed. The restaurant closes at 11. I'm home at 1130. I'm, I'm walking out of here. And I see that manager stay until two o'clock because he's got to make sure the place is cleaned up and ready for the next day. And the other problem that I see here is that when the cook doesn't show up, the manager's cooking. And when the busboy doesn't show up, the manager's busting the tables. And at the end of the day, if someone walks out because they're tired or something, the manager's got to sweep them off the floors. I said, I don't think that I want to be a manager. The title, <laughs> the title and the prestige uh, can sometimes hide the fact that the role is, is <laughs> a step down. Well, not to mention managers working 50 hours a week and I'm working, you know, basically 30 showing up at five going, you know, and, and making, you know, 
a tremendous amount of money as a young man, as a single young man. And, you know, back even then, even now, still not a, not a, not a bad salary. Yeah. So, and a lot of it was cash, you know, to be honest, you know, so there's some really great benefits. So, you know, I bought a new car and all that stuff and, and, you know, it was, you know, kind of living high and I, you know, had a great life, you know? And so I thought, you know what, I want to go back to, um, uh, uh, city college, you know, just for the heck of it, you know, cause I kind of like, um, uh, you know, the radio business and I kind of like, you know, maybe I'll be a disc jockey or something like that. That's kind of fun. You know, I can, you know, so I thought, well, I'll go take some radio classes because one of the things I used to do at the Sparrows restaurant is, um, uh, we used to sing, uh, birthdays to people. Now you've probably been to those restaurants where they kind of make a big deal out of the restaurant, out of a birthday. So, <clears throat> so people would come in and be, you know, their daughter's birthday and we'd gather all the waiters around and we'd make an announcement to hey, ladies and gentlemen, today, Joni's come in to celebrate her birthday. We'd like you all to join in to help us celebrate with Joni. And happy you sound like a DJ. You've, you've got the voice. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I make those announcements and people really liked them and they liked me. And they started to come to sit at my table. They would request, oh, yeah, we're going to wait. We want to have him do our birthday announcement for our, our four-year-old. You know, I'm sure, I swear to God, you know, there'd be these parties of six, and they'd have the grandma and the grandpa and the, the, the mother and father and the three kids, and they'd, they'd be, you know, Joni's birthday, and she's so, four. So you made it a big show know. where you had like a I made it a big show. Yeah. I had, yeah, people, so they started coming in and saying, no, we're going to wait for his table. They wait for 15, 20, 30 minutes just to sit at my, at my section so I could do their announcement. So now here's another connection, okay? So one day, a, a regular, and they'd tip me big. They'd be tipping me 10 bucks and, you know, 50, which is a ton, you know, for this type of restaurant. I mean, you know, oh, my, your $20, slip me 20s. I mean, just loving me, you know, and I was loving them. And, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a two-way street, you know. I mean, I'm loving them to death, too, because they were my buddies. You know, they'd come in. They're my kind of regulars, you know. They'd come in every year, two or three times a year with their kids, and the kids would be four. The next year, they'd be five. Next year, they'd be six. You know, I only stayed there two years, to be honest. But uh, so what happened is one of the guys – who came into the restaurant says, you know, you've got a really good voice. He said, I work for KCBQ radio. And he said, you know, you should come down and, uh, you know, just hang out. Maybe, you know, we can use your voice or you can get on the air or something can happen, you know? And I said, okay, I'll come down, you know? And so, um, uh, I drove out there, you know, and meanwhile, I was still a waiter. And I thought that's when I joined the city college thing. I went down to city college, you know, and, um, I did this little internship program. It's very interesting, isn't it? You know, way back then at the radio station, they didn't pay me, but I was just there. I was helping out with, you know, a little bit of this. And I was cutting tape. This is back when we used to actually splice tape together. And I did a couple of voiceover things together. We'd put tape, I mean, literally take two pieces of tape and put a piece of tape on top of it. And then that would be your edit. <laughs> it was wow. you know, crazy. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and it was tedious and time consuming, but, you know, there was a lot to do. And, and this was a big radio station at that time. And, and, you know, there was, you know, they were you know, booking, you know, millions of dollars in revenue, ad revenue. And meanwhile, they had, you know, their, their big time DJs. And then they had their, uh, their sales people and then they had their, their management and then they had, you know, uh, some of the admin staff and then they had, you know, a layer of interns. And so, you know, I got to go in there as an intern and kind of work and play and, 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 you know, watch the guys on the air and listen to them. And I made a demo tape of my own. I thought, Oh man, this is great. I could do that. And they helped me, you know, they liked me and I liked them. And, you know, we were, we were, you know, kind of learning together. And, um, so I made this demo tape and uh, I, I, he, he, the guy said, hey, look, you got to send it out to all these stations all around the country, you know, and, and that's what you should do da, 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 because you can get a job. And so I sent these tapes out to, you know, all over. And I actually got a job offer in Walla Walla, Washington. 
And I said, what is that? <laughs> I never knew what Walla Walla was. It was a tiny little town up in Washington State, you know. And there was another one in Texas. I got another uh, down near Houston. I got another job offer in a tiny town, you know, way outside Texas. And I, and I thought, boy, I, I don't know if I want to move to these little towns, you know. And the guy says, oh, no, that's, just, that's what you do. You go out. You, you do, you know, you do six to ten months there. You get an air check there. You get another tape. And then you bicycle yourself to another place. And you bicycle yourself to another place. And I said, well, okay, yeah, I got it. And he said, you know. And, and this guy was probably... 50 and I was, you know, 20, you know, and he's saying, you know, and he said, then, you know, he said, then, you know, you end up in a big market and you can make decent money. And I think he was probably making, you know, 70,000, $80,000 a year to be a DJ, which is decent money at that time. And certainly in, you know, when you're at the top of the rat of the ladder there, there's big money there, you know, but it's a long road, you know, and it's, it's a lot of variables there and a lot of people to think about as to, you know, how you get to that next level. And I kept thinking, well, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, I don't know if I want to leave San Diego and I don't know if I want to, you know, kind of, you know, do that whole thing. So, uh, you know, I, I was still at the radio station, still working at the, um, uh, at the Farrell's ice cream as a waiter, you know, still doing that. And I had this little city college thing going and, um, and I was down at city college. And, um, one day this kid, it was a radio class, you know, telecommunications, and it was just, you know, it was, I was taking one or two classes, uh, you know, per you know, semester. I was only there for like, I think one semester and midway through the semester, some kid sits up, stands up and says, Hey, we're looking for people uh, to come down to this radio station. It's kind of a startup thing. It's uh, it's called XHRM. It was out of Mexico, was broadcasting into San Diego. And um, he says, you know, we, we're looking for someone to come and help us be, you know, do an intern, maybe, you know, do the news and, and, you know, kind of write the news a little bit and, and uh, now this guy uh, was a black guy. And, you know, I grew up in the East Coast, played basketball and basketball team, you know, in high school. And, you know, I wasn't, it didn't even enter my mind. I said, hey, I'll come down. And so I go down and it's actually, it was a black radio station. It was one of the only few black radios that was, you know, black radio station playing soul music at that time or disco and soul. And it was owned by some guy who uh, owned, um, uh, he had the rights to the station. And he owned two record stores in uh, uh, town that sold primarily soul and disco music and, and such uh, because was the, the rock thing was pretty heavy at that time to the hard rock and all that stuff. So he, he had cornered the music, the market on this soul and disco c- concept. And he, he, he actually was smart enough to control the radio station to drive people into his record stores. You know, that was his gig. You know, he, he just wanted to sell records. So he actually got a six hour block that he owned. Uh, from 6 p.m. to 12 p.m. midnight uh, to um, uh, to air uh, a, a radio station that um, would really basically have just commercials for his record stores. <laughs> so so he put together this hotspot uh, hot little radio station, and they said, well, you know, we want to we want to make content it legit, marketing we, right there. He was he was ahead of yeah his no time. no he was he, he was great. This guy was you know he was a mentor in many ways you know. Because I'll tell you some stories about him as we get there. So, <laughs> so I go down and I write. I, you know, I, I say, well, look, you know, and and there's really no staff at all. He had, you know, uh, two DJs, uh, himself, uh, a couple of guys running around trying to sell advertising, and uh, and that was it. I don't know anybody was getting paid. I think the DJs were getting paid hardly anything. The advertising guys weren't making any money, but he was making money selling records, so he, he didn't care. You know, and and. Um, so I went down and, and uh, I said, well, how can I help you out? He goes, well, I want to make this a little bit more, a little bit more legit. So I'd like to have some news, you know, I'd like to have, you know, 
uh, every hour, maybe just do, you know, five minute newscast or two minute newscast, something just to make it look like a real radio station. I said, well, okay. He said, so he said, so what do you have in mind? He said, well, what, you know, why don't you write some news and, uh, and, uh, and then just record it and we'll play it, you know, on tape. Uh, you know, cause I wasn't going to be there at 6 PM because I said, Hey, I got to work. I'm, I'm still working at this, uh, this, uh, restaurant. And so I went in the mornings and I would sit there and we, you know, we pull news off of the wire. <laughs> it wasn't, there was no internet, <laughs> so, you know, and, and so we would actually, you know, find something to say. And it was typically just national stuff because it, was, it wasn't even really a local, a lot of local news available that way. And we would, uh, I would write a, a three minute newscast and I would voice over it and I would put it on tape and we kind of put it into a cart type situation where the guys could play it later on that, that night. So at six, uh, I think it was like six Oh five. They'd start, they, you know, they play a newscast at seven Oh five and you know, eight Oh five and, and all that. So I kind of learned a little bit about the radio station and, and kind of, you know, got my feet wet doing that. And again, you know, it had been around the KCBQ intern thing. And now I'm here at this one and a little bit more grassroots and totally on the, on the ground floor of what this guy's trying to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause for one second just to make two observations, because I think there's two ways, as you're telling the story, and I can tell there's only going to be more of this. There's two ways to hear your story. One is, wow, how cool. He goes out to California. He's getting all these great opportunities and this thing, and it's all so cool, which is true. But the things that I hear are, step one, you made a really difficult choice to disappoint and worry your parents a little bit, drop out of medical school, very prestigious, very known path that was safe and take a risk and go out with no particular plans to, to just pursue something you're interested in. That's really hard. And step two, when you got there, I think when you said you were willing to work weekends by being willing to do what nobody else was willing to do, that allowed you to get that first step. And I think it's really important for people listening to not overly glamorize the cool stuff. Wow. All these great opportunities keep happening to this guy, but like you were willing to do some pretty bold and courageous things and to put in the hard work. And that really sticks out to me. No, you're right. I, I, I hopefully, you know, your, your listeners do take that. And, and, you know, I don't know how glamorous it was. It was, it was a lot of work, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, I was, you know, up, you know, trying to, you know, and, and again, there was no one down there telling me how to write news stories. It was just write a news story. Oh yeah, I just write a news story. This is a guy. This is a guy who owns the radio station or the uh, record stores. But yeah, I just write a news story. Go Did ahead, you have go. any you know, any was, feedback, any way to know which one, like which ones people liked? No, no, there was so no. You're just kind of guessing. None of that stuff. Yeah, we were just kind of okay. Well, I'll just do a news story, you know. And, and you know, it was just you know, kind of it was almost uh, high school ish, you know, in that way. And, and I don't mean that in a in a in a just a caliber of what we were doing. It was not very sophisticated, <laughs> and but it didn't need to be. And that's what I think people understand. I was just doing it. Doing it is more important than just sitting there going and worrying about, oh, is it good enough? You got to just do it. It'll be good enough. It'll get there. So what happened is, you know, I did that for about uh, maybe about a month. And uh, this record store owner, you know, he, he was, you know, really flamboyant guy. He used to dress really sharp. You know, he was cool. You know, he drove the big Cadillac. You know, he was super cool. And uh, this is back with Superfly and you know, that whole thing, you know, that <laughs> pimp thing. And he was, he was kind of pimpish, you know, but he was a cool guy. And he, um, he and I used to talk every once in a while and then, you know, he'd say, son, you know, he'd always talk to me like that, son, you know, cause I was younger and he was you know, older, you know? So one day I came to him and said, Hey, how does anybody make any money around here? <laughs> he said, son, you gotta go out and sell some advertising. I said, really? He said, I'll, he said, I'll pay you 30% commission on whatever you bring in. He said, now think about that, son. If you bring a thousand dollars, you make 300. I said, really? Wow. 
I said, so what's it take to sell advertising? He said, we got a rate card right here. He hands me an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, had some numbers on it, 30 second spot was $15. I swear to God, I'm looking at this. I'm like, that's it, $15? Bucks? Okay, well, he says, he says, tell you what. He said, we're only on six hours right now, but I got big plans. I want this thing to be you know, 24 hours. I want to take over that station the whole way. But I need some money. I need some advertising. He said, the, I got these guys out here, and they're just not cutting it. They're just not, you know, they're just not following through. And so I said, well, okay. I said, well, what do you have in mind? He says, well, he said, I'm going to give you a couple of names. But he said, I want you to just listen to other radio stations. And when someone's advertising on that station, I want you to go talk to them and see if you can get them to come on our station. I said, well, that makes sense. So, okay, all right, that's easy. I listen to radio, I can do that. And so there was my advertising career started. And so basically what happened is um, I went out and literally the first day sold a $1,500 contract. I told a guy, I said, look, I said, look, you know, the spots are $15. I said, but I tell you what, if you you give me $1,500, I'll give you another $1,500 spots for free. And the guy said, okay, I'll do that. So I came back and I had a contract all signed, you know, and the, uh, and Travis, the owner, you know, the, the radio state or the, uh, the, the record store owner looks at me and goes, well, son, that's exciting, but there's no check here. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's no check. I said, yeah, but the guy, he's going to do it. He says, it's not a sale until you have that check, son. He said, I, I, I need you to go back and get a check. <laughs> I swear to God, it was like, <laughs> and so that was another lesson. Okay. You're right. It's not really going to happen because uh, we're not. He's, uh, he says we can't do anything until we have a check. So I went back out and I told the guy, "Look, I need to have a check." And he, he kind of looks at me and he, you know, and so he's like, well, and I, you know, I was you know, an honest guy, and you know, but you know, he was, you know, he really went out on the edge and he gave me a check. I came back and the guy was stoked. My, <laughs> my this owner was like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe it," because <laughs> you know they weren't doing really anything, and so. Now, I want your listeners to know that I became a, an avid reader and um, had made an avid quest for how to sell books and audio tapes, which were popular at that time, cassettes, uh, and started to devour anything that had techniques for sales techniques. What were, some know, of the, I, I just, what were some of the ones that you remember really stuck well, out to you? Well, um, oh gosh, Tom, uh, there's a guy named Tom, I forget his name, he's out of Arizona, uh, I, I can't believe I'm missing that one. Ogmandino did a book uh, that I used to read all the time, um, and that's kind of a motivation uh, self-help book, but uh, it has a sales pitch to it because, you know, a lot of sales is, is rejection. Yeah. And so you, you know, you, you call on 100 people and, you know, 10 say yes and 5 come through. So, you know, it, it, that's just the life. But um, uh, I think it's Tom Peters was the guy's uh, name. I was one of the other ones that I listened to a lot. And then uh, Dennis Waitley uh, had a lot of uh, motivational and inspirational uh, uh, concept, concepts as well. Uh, so I started to really devour anything I could get my hands on about how to sell, uh, you know, how to stay motivated, you know, how to close sales. And I became a, uh, a, a you know, a student of, you know, that whole process. And my sales started to rise as I became, you know, more well-known, but also more confident in the fact that, Hey, you know what? All they can say is no, you know, bottom line is I got it. It's a numbers game. You go out, boom, boom, boom. Now we had something very unique. We had a, 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 a targeted audience. However, we had no Arbitron numbers. We had no 
nothing to, to shout at. We were just we were just a blip on the surface. You you couldn't sell it to a Ford dealership, but you could sell it to the guy selling waterbeds. You got it. So we, you know, you'd waste your time with uh, the big advertisers because they're going to say, oh, "I have no numbers. No one's listening to that. I, I can't spend any money with you." You know. So you know, I kind of learned that pretty quickly. This was a ground root, a grassroots, ground floor. You know, pound the pavement and knock on doors in the neighborhoods that were listening to our our station, and that's how it worked. And I, I literally started ramping up, and and all of a sudden, you know, I was doing thirty thousand dollars a month. Wow. In sales. And this guy is, oh my gosh. So now he took the station from six hours. We, we then went from 6 a.m. to 12 midnight. Hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, he hires some more salespeople and he made me this, you know, big, big dog. And I'm like running around, you know, and, and, you know, making some serious money, making 10 grand a month, you know, uh, as a 21 year old and now involved in the advertising community of San Diego. So, uh, again, keeping in mind that, you know, I met the guy at Farrell's who then, you know, met the uh, guy at the uh, college who said, sent me to Travis, who then the, the record store owner who, you know, kind of got me into sales and, you know, kind of showed me a little, you know, he, he kind of mentored me on the sales concept and, you know, gave me, you know, uh, Real simple little seeds of here's how you do it. Here's how you want to go. Don't be discouraged. Keep on going. Go out there. Go out there. Just keep on going. And I self-taught myself some of that stuff. And now here's the next connection, which is even more instrumental in my entire life. So there was a guy who uh, is from the East Coast. Another good East Coast connection. His name was Stephen Horowitz. And Horowitz was the advertising manager at Coca-Cola in San Diego, the Coca-Cola bottling plant in San Diego. Now, many people probably don't understand the, the advertising world like I do now, but I'm, let me tell you, let me share a couple things for you. In any town, the largest advertisers are going to be car dealers and the beverage guys, whether it be a, a beer beverage or Coca-Cola beverage or Pepsi-Cola, whatever. They're the largest advertisers in town, typically, and home builders sometimes, depending upon what home, which one you're in. But car dealers are always the top dogs, and uh, the beverage guys are right there next to it. And so Coca-Cola uh, was a big advertiser, and they played off numbers, and they you know, were totally you know, buying by the book. They're buying the CBS, ABC, NBC stations, and then all the other you know, top-tier radio stations. But I called on the guy anyways because I'd met him at one of the uh, uh, trade shows. Well, not trade shows. uh, uh uh, luncheons for local advertising people. At this time, I was into this thing about five, six, seven months, making some good money, and I, and you know, starting to really try to get myself into the world of San Diego advertising. And you know, when it was networking at these luncheons and you know, meeting people and going, trying to go to some advertising agencies, trying to elevate some of these sales besides just the the ground floor uh, retailer. So this guy, I met him there, and he goes, oh, you know, we, you know, we, we, we buy numbers. You know, I've got to justify all my buys, you know, and, and which is what they always would say. I have to justify, you know, the, the money I spend. It's not his money, you know, because he's working for, you know, this big, you know, multi-million-dollar company that is, uh, you know, selling Coca-Cola. I mean, they're doing, you know, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty million dollars in sales, and and they're going to spend, you know, uh, five, six, seven million dollars a year in advertising. So. Um, uh, I call on the guy and he and I uh, kind of hit it off. You know, he's from the East coast. I'm from the East coast. He's a little older than I am. You know, I was still the youngest guy in the entire 
community of advertising. I was like 22 years old, you know, driving a nice car and, you know, and, and, you know, had this like, you know, kind of goofy little radio station that I was representing. Uh, and I was kind of the top dog there and I, you know, it was kind of cool, you know? And, and so I pitched him and I said, well, look, you know, we have an audience that you're really not reaching, you know, directly. Our audience, you know, is, uh, the, the urban, you know, guys listening to soul music and such, you know, the African-American audience is basically what we had, you know, I mean, so that we owned that, that, that was my claim to fame that, you know, I had this, you know, there was the only station in town playing that kind of music and that's the only station they listened to. And we had, you know, African-American uh, DJs and we you know, just had the whole thing locked up. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what, Steve Horowitz, Coca-Cola advertising manager says, I'll tell you what, I can't give you any, substantial bias, but at the end of the month, I usually have some money left over. And, you know, why don't you see me, you know, you know, around the end of this month, you know, coming on the 20th, 21st and see what we can do. Maybe we can put together a flight, you know, and, and see what happens. And so, you know, I called back on him, boom, you know, we, Hey, let me come in. He said, yeah, yeah. Like I got about $4,000 left over. I, I'll just, you know, I mean, these are crumbs, you know, <laughs> just sweeping them <laughs> off the table. You know, I got 4,000 bucks, but here you go. Here you go. You know? And so, so he, you know, he did it because he liked me. Okay. That's really important. I sold myself. And then of course the concept now, of course he's got to justify it somewhere and he could do that. And it's not a lot of money. So yeah, we'll just go ahead and do that. So we did it. And you know, and he thought, yeah, that, that sounded good. That worked out good. And they, they, they had highly produced spots that we'd get from them. You know, I'd go pick up the tapes you know, from the NBC station, you know, and, and we'd play the tapes. And so they'd made the station down even better, you yeah. know, because now all of a sudden you have these Coke, you have these bigger advertisers. So that attracts other advertisers. Yeah. Wow. You got Coke. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, you know, maybe I should think about that, you know? And so we, our sales got higher and higher. And I, my, my income went higher and higher and, Travis, the radio station guy, he's got a new Cadillac. <laughs> we're just driving, you know, we're on the cloud mine. And this guy in my Coca-Cola connection, I, we're buddies. You know, he's handing me tickets to uh, all these sporting events and concerts because he's getting them free because he's the big advertising dog in town. And, and all these other stations are giving him stuff. You know, he, <laughs> he's loaded with, with uh, restaurant trade and, uh, and tickets to concerts and just all kinds. And he and I are buddies. I had lunch and dinner at his house. And, oh, we're just buddies, you know, and, and, um, and he's, you know, my go-to guy, you know, he's my $5,000 a month easy. Hey, what do you got over there? Okay. It was a phone call now. You know, oh yeah, here you go. Boom, boom, boom. Here's the contact. Oh, okay, good. And, and it was perfect. You know, it was a perfect situation. And, um, one day he calls me up he says, Hey, why don't you come down and have lunch with me? So I go down and we, and we, and we have lunch and he says, uh, I've got some news for you. He says, I'm going to be leaving Coca-Cola. And I was like devastated. Oh my gosh, you're leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? He goes, yeah, um, uh, I, I've got another offer. It's pretty exciting. And, and, you know, I just want to let you know first off. And I go, wow, I'm really going to miss it. I said, you know, who's going to replace it? He said, oh, don't worry about that. He said, because I'm, I'm, I'm leaving now, I'm going to go over to Cox Cable. Hmm. Cox is going to start a new thing now. This is a brand new concept. And they're going to start a local channel that they're going to build and they're going to sell advertising on that local channel. And they're going to see if this is a, a model they can do, you know, nationwide. Cox is a big, big, huge, multi-billion dollar corporation, you know, that sells uh, cable wires to people's houses. But they wanted to get into the advertising business. Now, get, keep in mind, this is before ESPN, before CNN, before MTV, before any of these cable systems, right? Mm -hmm. So he says to me, but I want you to come work for me. And I was like, Florida, I was going, oh, my gosh. Well, you know, gosh, Steve, I'm making like, you know. 15 grand a month over here. I'm like, this, 
big cheese dog, man. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the top of the, the ladder. You know, he, he goes, oh, no. He said, you know, trust me. He said, this cable thing is hot. He says, where you want to be, you, you, you definitely want to, you know, you want to really consider this position. And it didn't take me but two minutes because, again, uh, you know, I believed in him. And I didn't really even re- research much what was going to happen. I just said, you know, okay, I'm coming. What, what you know, year Because was here's it? the one thing. It was uh, 1981. Okay. Yeah, 1988, 1981. There's a couple of stories that go in are fascinating here, too. It's really amazing. So anyway, so he and I, you know, go over, and then he, he had put together a small sales team. He brought in some old uh, – I mean, I mean, of course, I'm like – 24 or 23 right at this point right you know and uh uh i'm actually i'm 24 yeah so he, he had this old crusty old guy who was a you know seasoned advertising executive you know kind of like the sales manager and then he brought this uh woman in and uh and myself and there were three of us you know and so the seasoned guy he had a whole bunch of old pocket accounts that you know that he worked and he knew personally you know and so he would he was working those guys and getting those guys to come over and they were you know they were seasoned advertisers like Thompson's water seal was one that I remember, you know, just crazy, you know, you know, hard products, you know, that he could, you know, call up and say, Hey, you know, get me some of this. I'll get you to this. And so we had this, this goofy little radio station, you know, and he was, he was, he talked like that too. He got this, you know, he was very gravelly in his voice. And then, um, Steve wanted me to pound the pavement. He said, Hey, look, dude, you did a great job with XHRM, the radio station. I know you can do this. Go out and, and, and pound the pavement for us. And so we had this, this TV station that Cox put together as uh, one of the channels on their cable. And the interesting thing about uh, Cox cable at that time and San Diego County is that San Diego County had 200,000 people under one wire. If you think about what, what I mean by that is that, uh, Cox Cable served a base of 200,000 people, wow. whereas in, in, on the East Coast, you know, the cable networks are typically cut into uh, like 15,000, 7,000, you know, people under one wire in one company. Even though uh, like uh, a Comcast, which wasn't around then, there were all these small ones that were around, they wouldn't talk to each other either. So you'd have, you know, 15,000 people served by one company and another right next door, you know, there'd be 7,000 people served by another company. And But San Diego County had... Uh, everybody under one wire and because the reception uh, was so poor because of the way the terrain here everybody had cable mm. i mean there, it was this is just when people were starting to buy cable i mean this is, you know you can't even imagine now this is back you know people had antennas on their house but because san diego reception was so poor based upon the terrain here and the way that the uh, the signals channel there were just everybody like 80 percent of the households had cable tv so the, it was it was an experiment for them to say, hey, look, this is a pretty good market to experiment and see if we can actually do a local channel and actually sell advertising and be profitable. So they put a whole bunch of black and white TV shows on this old channel. It was like, you know, Leave it to Beaver and Flipper and Mr. Ed and all these old, old shows, you know, um, that they would, you know, we, we literally had, you know, 24 hours of, you know, just 1950s TV junk, you know, uh, but it was programming. And so we start selling spots. Now, the thing about selling advertising, which is fascinating, is that you have more time than you have, uh, you know, advertisers. You know, this, you know, you can't, and if you can't sell the time today, you can't sell tomorrow. Hmm. So, you know, it, it, we were, Steve and I had many conversations about, hey, let's be flexible. Let's just get some money in here, you know. So he said, just go out and make deals, you know. So I started putting deals together. 
And I was selling spots for, you know, like, look, you give me a hundred bucks, I'll give you a hundred spots. And, you know, and so, you know, how can you refuse? You know, we, I feel like you can dominate the whole thing. You know, you're going to be a hundred spots, you know, in, in a day, they're going to see you. Someone's going to see you. anybody watching this thing. They're going to see it. And that was the big question. Well, is anybody watching? We had no numbers, no Arbitron, nothing to substantiate, but you know, Cox had some money and they threw some billboards up and they made it look like, uh, uh, like people were watching. And one of the things that's really interesting, you know, again, is, you know, the billboards that are, you see for the radio stations and the TV stations uh, to advertise, they weren't really to get viewers. They're to get advertisers. You know, yeah. they're just to tell people, look, we're here, you know? And, and so, so people, when you'd walk in there and say, Oh, we're Cox Cable Channel 4. Oh yeah, that's uh, I saw, I know what that is <laughs> versus uh, what, what is that? You know? So we started selling these advertising, uh, these advertised uh, local spots. And I was, crawling the county and my income kind of suffered a little bit. You know, I literally, you know, I, I, I took a step back and I was like, you know, kind of, you know, like, okay, Steve, is this thing going to work or not? <laughs> and um, what's interesting though, uh, is uh, uh, as I uh, uh, started to get into this, I, I, I stumbled upon two things. One on Sundays, uh, religious programs that you see, uh, they actually buy those half hours. And so I start calling all of those guys up and saying, Hey, look, I've got, half hours gee you can put your show on our on our station and these religious guys would buy them so the cool thing about those were is they were 52 week contracts and uh you know we started selling the the half hours for like 100 bucks and so you'd be a five thousand dollar deal but you know i started selling i started selling them all you know it was 6 a.m i started loading them up and every half hour i had you know a, a deal there 100 bucks 100 bucks 100 bucks 100 bucks you know for the whole year because they'd buy the whole year and uh, little did I know how much money these religious guys are making because they're, they're pitching people that if you send me, you know, a hundred bucks, you know, God will save you, you know, <laughs> so, but bottom line is it was money to the station. It was money to me. I start booking up some, uh, some time there. And then I really, I really looked at that half hour time and said, wow, that's really exciting. So, you know, I kind of, that was something I learned and I thought, well, those are great contracts because I can sell them all, you know? And then, um, uh, ESPN and, um, MTV started coming out. So I remember uh, distinctly going into a car dealership and saying, Hey, I'm with Cox cable channel four, you know, we've got this new thing going on and you know, it's kind of cool. And we got this new network. It's called uh, entertainment sports programming network. It's all sports 24 hours a day. The guy would look at me and say, no one's going to watch that. <laughs> and I'd say, well, yeah, but it's, it's, you know, it's coming. It's, it's brand new. It's, it's going to be hot, you know, but no one's going to watch. No one's watching that. Get out of here, kids. Get, 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 get. I was still the young guy, you know, get out of here. <laughs> kicked me out here Cause it was, I had no numbers, you know, so entertainment sports programming network came on. And so what Cox's plan was, was, okay. You know, what we want you to do is not only have this channel four thing, but we're going to introduce these other networks, ESPN, MTV, CNN, and we're going to sell local spots in those too, which they're doing now very effectively. But I was at the forefront of that. I mean, I was at the at the tip of that iceberg. All right. So, uh, so you were trying to sell people on you and on the potential of this product because you really didn't have hard numbers to back no, any of this stuff up. Yeah, it was all uh, it was all um, uh, it was all vanity buy in many ways, but it was also. Uh, a concept buy, you know, because yeah. you could do it, you could get repetition cheap, you know, because the spots on the local channels, uh, you know, the CBS, NBCs, they were five, six, seven hundred, eight hundred bucks a piece for 30, for 30 seconds. Hmm. 
So that's the difference. You know, we, you know, Hey, look, you want some repetition and that's what makes advertising work is repetition. You can't, you, you can't see a spot once. So we would sell repetition and we would package stuff together and, and, you know, you buy this, give me $3,000 for the month and I'll give you $3,000 free and give me this and give me, you know, all kinds of deals. And, and so our income started to rise and people, you know, started to say, this is cool and all that. And I got this little wild hair up my, uh, uh, proverbial self uh, one day, um, I said, you know, the half hour thing, you know, what if I were to make a half hour show and I would go out and sell spots in that half hour show and I would actually do like a two minute little infomercial on the show about that commercial, that, about that advertiser. So today they, this is all, they would call it influencer marketing or, you know, there's all these names for it. But I mean, this was, this was. There was yeah. no internet then. This you were way ahead of the, no, the no. curve here on this. So this is this is really where this whole thing gets to be very exciting now. So I made I made some money. I have been involved in the advertising. I was exposed to stuff. Exposed to ESPN. Very important you remember that. Exposed to MTV. I'd go to CNN. I'd go out and I'd pitch CNN to people, and I say, look, it's it's called cable news network. It's all news, twenty four hours a day. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. And they'd say, who wants to watch that? <laughs> so, you know, but, you know, then MTV and all that stuff would come along. We, we, we started selling spots and some of that stuff. But uh, what I did is I actually formed my own half-hour show. I, 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 I kind of, you know, I mean, I, I kind of went around. This is, you know, kind of a little underhanded thing I did is I, I actually uh, started a company outside of, the, out of, outside of Cox. And I sold myself a half-hour of time. And then I went out and I resold it uh, in that half hour. So I took that half hour. I bought the half hours for a hundred bucks and I played it 15 times a week. So my contract with Cox was 1500 bucks a week. And I took that half hour and I went outside and I actually started to sell people two minute slots in there for $500. Hmm. So I sold 1500 dollar slots, excuse me, uh, uh, five, five, two minute slots times 15 times 500. So I was generating, uh, I was basically generating three to $4,000 a show and it was costing me $1,500 over there. So then what I did is I actually had to produce those commercials. Was Cox okay so, with this? Well, no, see, they didn't know because I had a <laughs> front man kind of sitting out there. So here it gets interesting, you know, what happens. And so, so I started doing this show on the side and I started raising the rates and I started, I started doing, I started netting about three to $4,000 a week with this show. And the, the funny thing is, is that I was actually on the show. I was actually the host of the show and management, you know, they didn't, they weren't really looking at it because, you know, my numbers were high and I was, everybody was happy. You know, I was making a lot of money, you know, and Station was making a lot of money. I, would, I had my religious thing going. I've got my local clients. I had uh, this little show I started, which was just adding money to the pile. And, and so it's just all at the bottom line. It looked great. Everybody was happy. You know, I mean, it was really happy. And I had this show going. And the show was on the air for like 72 What, what was the show about? Like, what did you talk about in a half hour? Well, it was called TV Shoppers. And what I did is I would actually, uh, it was all local and I would start the show off at usually a local venue like SeaWorld or the zoo or the blimp or a football game or something that was happening in San Diego down at the Harbor or whatever. And, um, I, uh, uh, would then cut away to uh, a commercial, like a two minute infomercial, a small little infomercial that was really an interview with a store owner. I say, hey, tell us about your store. Like, what do you have in here? You know, and, and, and you know, people actually liked it. <laughs> they actually watched it. They guys got tremendous response. 
And it was a really good idea. Uh, it was all local. And um, I mean, that's a, here's that's a, a brilliant story. idea. I mean, just so here's a side story, it. though. Here's a side story to tell you. So meanwhile, you know, I'm still working at Cox. I'm still involved with the Cox cable. The cable thing is, you know, becoming heated uh, as far as uh, more and more people are buying cable all around the country. There's more and more cable uh, stations. You know, uh, there's, you know, HBO, of course, was already there. But now there's uh, Showtime and Cinemax and all these other ones starting to come into play. And this is getting to be a multi-billion dollar worldwide play, you know, certainly. And so, you know, as part of your uh, responsibilities with the, uh, with the corporate Cox, is hey there's a there's a cable convention in Anaheim and we want you guys to go you know and so okay well I'll drive up to Anaheim you know it's you know an hour drive from San Diego and and I'll walk around the convention what are we gonna see well you know so we go to the convention you know and so we you know kind of split up and everybody starts walking around and you know and it's a bunch of like hardware it's like satellite dishes and connector switches and cables and all kinds of hardware bullshit you know it's like oh man this is okay why am I here you know because <laughs> I had no interest in any of that stuff it was not you know but this was cable back then you know and here's here's how to play commercials and you know they had all these you know hardware sides and then there was a small programming side and they had people, you know, selling old movies, packages and old show packages. And, you know, there are a couple of people with their own programs. And here's an amazing story. There was a, a 10 by 10 booth. And I walk up to the guy and says, so what do you do? He goes, well, so I got a little show down here in Florida. And um, we sell, you know, appliances and other things that are kind of, you know, seconds or, or last year's model. I get them and we kind of auction them and, you know, we, we have a little auction thing going on. And um, I said, well, yeah, you know, so like what kind of stuff? He goes, well, you know, we, we just did really good with a whole bunch of toasters and uh, some blenders and stuff, you know. You know, I got, I got like, uh, you know, 3,000 blenders and we sold them out in, you know, a couple of days, you know. I said, wow, that's pretty impressive. You know, I said, well, you know, but blenders, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I got a show too. You know, I, I do this TV shoppers thing and, you know, I kind of do a half hour where we, you know, we do local stories. He said, oh, yeah, so that's pretty interesting, you know, so. And, um, you know, I thought, well, you know, I don't want to do blenders, you know, that's kind of boring. You know, it's kind of not my thing, you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't smart enough to know. So, so here's the catch. So, you know, we shake hands, we're nice, friendly. And um, I'll never forget, I'm walking away from his booth and I turned my head around and his sign said home shopping network. <laughs> so that was the start of the home shopping network, Wow! which is now of course a billion dollar deal. And I often think, gee, I could have turned my ship and sold blunders. <laughs> <laughs> well, how, how did but you, I didn't. So, so you're, you're on camera, you're kind of a pitch man of sorts. How did you turn that into specifically firearms videos? Okay, here's the next connection. Remember, if you if you're listening and you're thinking about this, it's all about the people. It's about the connections you make and how you impress them. And so I'm going to say this real quickly. And I'll probably say it again. Whatever you do, whatever job it is, no matter how meaningless it feels or how uh, unrewarding it is, do it really, really well because someone's going to notice and someone's going to help you get to that next level as long as you know where you want to go. So. Here I am selling TV shoppers, still working at Cox. Okay. I got to tell you the story first. And I'm going to tell you how I got into the gun business. And um, one day, uh, my general manager, now not the sales manager, not my buddy, but the general manager of Cox Cable San Diego, the big dog, you know, kind of really tied into corporate in Atlanta, you know, 
he says, hey, Miguel, you know, want to meet you. You know, so I go up to his office and there's, you know, secretary waiting there. And, okay, one second, have a seat. Da, 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 da. I go in and meet him. He goes, well, <clears throat> we have a we have a problem here. <laughs> I said, well, um, how can I be? Well, you know, I've somehow this check just came by my office and I just happened to see this. And he said, this is the check for the airtime that you're buying the $1,500. He says, you know, that airtime, he said, this is a check, you know, for that company. He said, but your signature's on that check. And I said, well, yeah, that is my signature. So he said, well, what's going on here? He said, well, I said, well, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I got a little show and I'm, you know, my, I said, look, I'm booking more money than anybody else in the whole place. And I'm doing, you know, he says, he says, yeah, there's kind of a conflict of interests. And I'm being young and dumb. I said, well, I don't really see that. I said, look, you know, you guys get your money. You're getting a hundred dollars you want for the show. He said, yeah, but you're out there selling. He said, you know, you're selling it for yourself and then you're really not selling it for us. I said, well, you don't have this offer. He said, you have to make a choice. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to go on my own. And that was the big step. Wow. I like, ooh, ooh, I gotta, I'm going I'm to sever ties with the, the Cox corporate umbrella. And, uh, and so I, I did. And so what happened, you know, is I, I continued to run. He let me run the show. He didn't close the show. He said, oh, we'll take your 1500 bucks. <laughs> you know? He said, we're going to raise your rate at some point. You know? And so I said, well, why would you do that? I said, this is the, the published rate. He goes, well, you know. He said, the rates are going to go up. He said, just be aware of that. So I ran a show for uh, about five months or more after that. But during that time, one of my customers, who I did a little two-minute spot for, name is Bob Weaver, he uh, owned a shooting range in San Diego. <laughs> and we went up, and we did a commercial for him. And he actually was renting guns, and uh, he had a, an Uzi there. Uh, uh, and this was kind of right around when president Reagan had got shot and the uh, secret service guys pulled the Uzis out of their jackets and, you know, everybody was like, Oh, you know, freaking out. So the Uzi had a lot of popularity at that time. And, um, we actually, you know, put a commercial together, me shooting an Uzi and say, Hey, you want to shoot a com- an Uzi? Come on down and rent it right here. And he just had wines out the door. <laughs> he was <laughs> ecstatic, super happy with the whole thing. Super happy with me. You know, he and I liked each other. He liked me. He's also from the East coast. You know, we did all that stuff. So, um, He's a connection. Okay. And, uh, I met him. I started doing some other advertising work for him. He wanted, you know, he, he wanted to create a, a gun. He actually got some money together and actually start, try to start a gun company. It didn't really go anywhere, but I did some, some marketing for him. I put together a poster for him and went to a, a, the shot show trade shows. First time I was ever there way back in 1982, I guess this was 83 right in that ballpark. Um, and so, um, one day he says to me, he says, well, you know, there's a, there's a guy up in Temecula who owns a big holster company. It's called Bianchi. His name is John Bianchi. And he's, you know, he's got this pistol tournament. And, and I hear he wants to put it on TV. And, you know, you're doing this TV thing. Maybe you should go talk to him. So now John Bianchi uh, was a police officer uh, who started a holster company, uh, didn't go to college. Okay. You know, he, he actually, you know, uh, was a cop. He knew that he, he realized that they, he didn't have a good holster, started making holsters, started selling holsters to other cops. All of a sudden 
started selling a whole lot of holsters, quit being a police officer and became this international celebrity in the gun business. Uh, James Bond type guy, you know, <laughs> used himself in his own advertising was his brand. Uh, used to fly to work in a helicopter. I mean, this guy was, you know, you know, he was doing $20 million back in 1980, you know, 81, 82, uh, super, uh, you know, uh, charismatic guy, uh, you know, ramped his business up to nothing. If anybody knows anything about the leather business, the margins are uh, incredible. You know, you have uh, $3 worth of leather yourself or, you know, $69, you know, and this is labor is what it is and, and, uh, and design. And so I go up to see him and he's in this huge building, you know, and it's, you know, brand new and, you know, it's, unbelievable he's got you know 300 people working here and and i go in and there's a sign that i walk in it says welcome lenny mcgill i thought wow this is cool you know i made an appointment with him you know and i go in and and, you know there's a there's a receptionist and then i go to his office and there's his secretary i'm sitting down in his in in the chair waiting for him i go in his office his office is just unbelievable you know it's like you know the nicest office i've ever been in you know and and, you know, obviously very successful. And he says, yeah, I've got this pistol tournament out in Missouri. And um, he says, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, I'd like to get some publicity for it, you know, because it'll help the brand, help my name and help us get, you know, this thing going on. He says, he says, you know anything about guns? I said, well, yeah, he said, shoot, I was from Pennsylvania. You know, I know a whole lot about guns, <laughs> which I, you know, knew a little bit, but didn't know a whole lot. But I kind of <laughs> bullshitted my way through the whole thing. And so, he said, but I do know a lot about TV and I know a lot about ESPN. I said, that's the perfect place to put this uh, show you want to do because it's a sports event and uh, I, I can get you on ESPN, uh, you know, and I kind of had a little knowledge about that, you know, I mean, because I'd you know, been around that a little bit and I knew that at that time, they were showing, you know, women's volleyball. That was a major sport, college women's volleyball. You know, I mean, they didn't really have a whole lot of They didn't have the NFL. They didn't have baseball. They didn't have uh, any Olympics. They didn't have anything. You know, it was, ESPN was struggling for content. <clears throat> so um, he said to me, well, okay, good. You know, he said, I, I can envision, you know, that. He, he said, no. He said, no, I have no budget. I was like, oh, here I am sitting in his office you know, with all this money. I got no budget for this show. I said, well, 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 what do you mean you have no budget? He says, yeah. He says, he says, look, he says, I can pay, I can pay for your plane tickets, and I've got a hotel blocked out. I can get you hotel rooms. He said, but I can't, I can't do anything else. He said, and I said, look, okay. I said, you know, I'm kind of like, how can you not have any money for this? You know, so I said, tell you what. Here's, here's, here's the deal. We made this deal right there. It was no big contract, you know, not a lot of, you know, bullshit running back and forth. I said, here's what we can do. Why don't I go ahead and I'll, I'll come out and I'll videotape the show. And I had a lot of experience videotaping now. This is, I'm already a year and a half into my show. You know, I've, I've been running around San Diego videotaping stuff. And, uh, you know, I didn't ever take a college class on video. Uh, I've got couple camera people that I'd hired to, uh, cause I was on camera. So they were shooting the camera. Uh, they were good buddies of mine. We were, you know, running around shooting stuff. I, I, you know, the one guy was really into the whole craft of stuff and, and making things look good. And the cameras weren't quite as automatic now then as they are now. So he was a craftsman and wanted to make pretty pictures. And, and I was a salesman and wanted to sell stuff. And so we were a good combination. And then we, you know, I knew I had a crew together that could do it. And uh, I said to him, I'll come out there with the equipment. And I'll videotape the show and I'll come back and I'll edit it because I've been editing those shows all along too, you know? And so I had some editing experience and knowledge and knew what it took to do all that. And uh, I said, I tell you what, uh, I said, all I need is this. I, I, I said, I need to own the show. I said, you know, it's certainly going to be your name, but I need to own it and I need to be the guy who's going to do it. And I need to be able to sell advertising in it and sell and keep all the revenue. And he said, fine, that'd be great. <laughs> it was just that easy. You know, and uh, so um, 
he took us out to uh, 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 Missouri, which was uh, basically uh, in the middle of Missouri. It's uh, Columbia, Missouri, where University of Missouri is. And um, he had a hotel there, and, and I had two cameras and uh, three people. Uh, one guy was running tapes back between us. I saw a camera. My buddy saw a camera, and we just videotaped this entire event. Uh, it was a pistol tournament. Had the first one I've ever been to. Never saw one before, but it was pretty fascinating. These guys were the top shooters in the world competing in this big tournament for a check for $15,000, which is kind of neat. That was a lot of money. So um, uh, while we're there, all the big advertisers were there that, that were sponsoring the tournament. That was Colt, Smith & Wesson. Beretta, all the names, Taurus, all the names you're familiar with in the firearms business. They were all there. <clears throat> they were all a bunch of older guys, you know, uh, that were out there. And it's a big party to them. They got, you know, they had these big motorhomes. They're all drinking in their motorhomes and having fun <laughs> and watching these guys shoot. And they were sponsoring and, you know, Bianchi was shaking hands and they were all having a great time. And so one day after the, after the shoot, there was four days. It was uh, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday morning. Uh, one day, uh, I think it was Friday afternoon, I went into one of the motorhomes. They were all there, and I pitched them all. And I said, look, guys, you know, we want to put this on, our, on TV. Here's what we need to do. We need to come up with a, uh, a, a revenue uh, situation so I can go buy time on ESPN and put this show on ESPN. I need each one of you guys to spend $5,000 to create a spot, and I'll make the spot for you. And then I need you to, uh, uh, you know, pay me you know, in advance of that. i got to make all this happen, you know I mean? So – I pitched them all, all right there, you know, amongst some, uh, I think it was wild turkey whiskey that <laughs> they were all drinking. <laughs> and I don't drink, you know, so I, cause I just, I can't, I can't, uh, stomach this stuff. I just, it's too much for me. So they're all getting loaded and I pitched them and they all said, okay, we'll do it. Yeah. What the fuck? You know, they, you know just, you know, I mean, just kind of going on, let's just do it. What the, okay. And these guys have a lot of money. This is Colt and Smith and Wesson. I mean, these are big companies, $5,000 of them was like nothing, you know? So yeah. they're okay, okay, okay. We're all in. So I generated, uh, $35,000 and I still had spots left over. So, cause there were only 30 second spots and you know, you're basically in a, in a show, you get, uh, uh, seven minutes worth of commercials. And so you have 14, 30 second spots. So, uh, you know, I had some money left over, I had some uh, time left over, but I ended up getting enough money to come back and actually, um, uh, produce a show, but even more exciting that night we were celebrating. I was like, Oh man, he's going to do it. Yeah. We're out. The three of us are driving around. We we're, we're driving around town. We had dinner in Columbia, Missouri, and they drove by a place at 11 o'clock that was open and it said Kinko's. And I'd never heard of a Kinko's before because they weren't on the West Coast at that time. And Kinko's was a 24-hour copy shop available to college students at the University of Missouri, or, you know, right there in Columbia. I have very fond and, memories of, of uh, my mom used to have to go to Kinko's all the time when I was a kid when it first came to town. I did the smell of the copy scene, yeah. that paper smell, such a great smell. <laughs> well, that was back, that was mimeograph back then, man. I tell you, it was, so, so what happened is I said, Hey, that place is open right now. Let's go in there. You know? So we go in, they have some, you know, graphic artists. And I said, you know what we should do? Let's make a flyer and we'll sell a VHS version of this thing too. And, you know, so we sat down with some guy and he, he would sit there and we actually just typeset a little thing that said, Hey, you know, put a, an order form on there. And, and, you know, it's a, cause people were asking us, well, what's this for? What's this for? Cause there were no cameras back then. I mean, this is very unusual to even see a big video camera yeah. and there were no, no, no cell phones, you know? <laughs> so I mean, this is way back, you know? Uh, and so no one was videotaping people said, you know, can I get a copy of people to ask, can I get a copy of this? And, and, and this is just when VHS was out. And beta was out too. So it was like the, the war between VHS and beta, you know? So, so I went ahead and I actually had a checkbox, which one you want VHS or beta, you know? And I put a little price tag there, forty nine ninety five. 
Now, where would you sell and, it? Uh, did you have spots in the in the show? No, air on no, 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 no. So what I did is we we made the flyer, right? And uh, I said, okay, now you know. So we actually physically typeset at that moment, and then we actually went ahead and and I said, we'll go ahead and make two hundred copies of the thing, and we'll you know we'll we'll send them out all around the parking lot, you know. And um, uh, so then I took that guy who was running tapes. I said, just go park, just go fly to the parking lot, you know, put as many as you can. He took a hundred of them, and then we had some we passed down. We put some on the tables out there, and um, and you know, and people said, oh, you, what are you doing? Well, we're shooting a show for ESPN. What's that? <laughs> I swear to God, was, what's that? Well, it's a, it's a cable network. Uh, what's that? I said, well, it's going to be on TV, you know, but here's the flyer. You can get a VHS tape. Oh, okay. They take it, you know, so we, we're passing them out. So, um, so you're just, you're just trying to sell them to the people who are at the event itself. Basically. That's right. That's yep. just here. You want to, because no, people have never seen themselves on camera. Yeah. You know? Right. So meanwhile, we've got, we've got the best shooters in the world. Uh, we've got, um, uh, an event that's kind of a high end, uh, pistol tournament in the world. Um, I'm running around, you know, like crazy videotaping all these different match, uh, well, segments. So there's like five different uh, courses of fire. Uh, we're, we're bouncing back and forth, trying to find the best shooters and see who's going to win. And we're, you know, burning a whole bunch of tape. Uh, but you know, it was kind of fun. And, and, you know, I, I got to meet a whole bunch of people. I started interviewing the, the, the best shooters and saying, Hey, how, how do you do this? You know, what's your technique? You know, and I started going through this whole thing with them and they were all anxious to be on TV. It was like, Oh yeah, I want to be on TV. This would be fun. You know, this is cool. You know, they'd never been interviewed before. Never saw a big camera like that. You know, you see them on the news in a sense and, and video cameras are just starting to happen. This is way back when cameras were on tubes. We had tube cameras. I mean, this is way back, you know, when, when video is just starting to come out. I mean, five years before that, the news was being shot on film. Huh. So the video camera business was brand new. And so we started, you know, uh, interviewing these top shooters and I got to know them personally. They got to know me personally. So after one thing, you know, leads to another, you know, we, we did the event, we, you know, drove to St. Louis, flew home, uh, had all these tapes and started to edit and started to try to put together a 30 second or 30 minute show for ESPN. And meanwhile, I contacted ESPN, had the whole deal together and, you know, got, you know, I bought a half hour time on ESPN for $10,000. I ended up generating about $45,000 in ad sales. So I netted $25,000 uh, on this whole deal. I thought that's pretty cool. You know, I, I could, you know, I mean, it took a long time, but you know, Hey, there's some money there. Uh, but what was more amazing, I ended up getting in the mail, 200 checks for $50. And I said to myself, Oh, now that's a business. <laughs> now that's exciting because that was just extra money. And I thought to myself, well, gee, maybe I could sell maybe even 200 more of these to people who weren't there. Yeah. You produce so it once and you just ship them. So, so you were, you had to duplicate all these VHSs. Was that a costly or time intensive process or no? Well, as, uh, so this is the first one I really did that was truly commercially successful and, um, the, the 1983 Bianchi cup. And so I put an ad in a little, uh, gun magazine, took a little, you know, I guess it was a four inch ad and put it in the magazine and, and end up selling a couple more to people. And then what happened is, you know, another guy, there's another tournament up in Los Angeles called the steel challenge. And they called me up and said, Hey, can you come up and videotape ours? I said, Sure. I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, I'll come up. Yeah. And so then there was another event uh, called the Masters in Barrie, Illinois. And, and I called them and said, hey, I can come out and videotape that. Oh, yeah, great. Come on out. So all of a sudden, in 1983, I did the Yankee Cup. I did the Steel Challenge. And I did the, uh, uh, the Masters and the USPSA. I did four events. And now I had a library of tapes. And the same people who bought the first one 
bought all three of the other ones. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, I'm sitting here looking, and, and, I, and you know, at the end of the year, I have like a hundred and some odd thousand dollars in uh, videotape sales. And they were selling for a lot of money at that time. We were selling for like 50 bucks because that's what they were. Yeah. And they were getting, I didn't have any duplicating equipment. I had them duplicated off house at that time. And so, uh, and I thought, well, this is kind of exciting, you know, I mean, geez, you know, and, and then I had that Yankee cup thing gone. And then meanwhile, the TV shoppers kind of got closed because Cox, you know, said, well, we're going to raise your rate. And they just jacked my rate way up. They were just pissed off because I was making too much money. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, so, you know, and, you know, here's the, here's the saying, I've told this to everybody that I know, and, and it's, it's a fun one is how much money is too much more than me. <laughs> So you're making too much money. That means you're making more than me. Yep. And it's funny because my, you know, my brother, the doctor, you know, uh, he works at a hospital and the administrators, you know, will say to them often, you guys are making too much money. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Well, you're making more than us. You know, we're the administrators, but yeah, we're the doctors. We're saving lives here. You're just pushing paper. Yeah. But you know, we're important. You know, no, no, no. So this is the constant struggle is how much money is too much. And uh, so, you know, Cox Cable, my general manager, I was making more money than him. And he was kind of like, okay, enough of that. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yep. So so anyways, I started doing this gun thing. And um, uh, what I found is that, you know, I, I did an event, did those events. And they, you know, of course, they wanted me to come back next year for the Bianchi Cup. And of course, I went back because I said, yeah, I'm coming back. Went back in full force this time, had uh, three cameras and more guys. And, uh, you know, and sold the same advertisers and a couple more and ended up generating like $50,000. And ESPN was like, oh, yeah, well, our rate this year is 12000 You know, So they start jacking their rates up, too, as they got more and more popular. And so uh, the business started to, uh, to go. But what I noticed is that the 1983 tape wasn't selling anymore. It's like, mm-hmm. I want the 1984. That's the new one. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I did, the, I did the, end up doing the Soldier of Fortune event. I did the... Uh, um, uh, the, uh, steel challenge again, I did the masters, I did the USPSA and, uh, but then the old ones are not selling. I said, Oh man, that's not, you know, gee, I've got these, you know, they're just not selling because they're old. <laughs> so I said to myself, well, I guess, you know, I should produce something that's a little bit more universal. <laughs> so I had all these interviews because as I went to each one of these tournaments, I interviewed the top guys and said, well, how do you do it? How do you do it? I was very inquisitive. You know, what's your technique? You know, how do you shoot so fast? How do you shoot so accurately? Tell me about your equipment. Tell me about your training. Tell me about all the things you do to get to this level and, you know, and, you know, all that stuff. And I learned a lot, you know, from these guys. These are the best guys in the world. You know, I mean, they're incredible shooters and they're from all walks of life, from all parts of the country. You know, uh, you know, there's just, it's just amazing, uh, uh, the information I gleaned from them, which is really important because what I ended up doing is I took those interviews. Like one day I sat down and I looked at them all and I said, you know what? I want to make a tape called pistol masters. And, uh, basically it was an interview with all these guys about how they shot and what they did to become so good. And I put together about a 75 minute video called pistol masters. And it, it featured, you know, I think, uh, eight of these guys. So each one was about 10 minutes. I just, whittled down just the essence of what they were. And, um, you know, some of them were, were pretty eloquent and they could speak well and others had to really pull, you know, stuff from them. Uh, but I was, I managed to be able to edit them together and I segued in between myself to try to make sense out of all this stuff so that people could watch it. I made a watchable 70 minute program on how to become a good pistol shooter. And it sold like crazy. Huh. And it was like, wow, Oh, this is great. 
oh my gosh, you know, I mean, five, six, seven, eight thousand copies at 50 bucks a piece. All of a sudden it's getting exciting because there's a whole bunch of people out there who wanted to know who Rob Latham was and what he did and know who Jerry Barnhart was and know who, you know, uh, Todd Jarrett was and all these top guys that I put in there. And meanwhile, the next year, 1986, I'm back at another tournament and I did the whole cycle again. And I've got these uh, uh, last year's tapes to sell. Now I, I had a table at these booths. And I was actually putting the, the videotapes on the table and people were coming up and buying, oh, okay, I'll take that one because I was in that one last year. I remember, you know, but I didn't get a copy. They'd be buying them right there. And then I, you know, I had a stack of the, all the, all the, oh, so unfortunate. I haven't done that tournament. Let me see what that's all about. Boom. Steel Challenge. I want to go to that next year. Let me buy that one too. You know, so all of a sudden I start selling all these uh, tapes to the other competitors who, you know, you know, cause it's like a circuit. You know, you want to go uh, shoot this match and another match and another match and another match. These are all the top matches in the world. There's, there's local matches all over, but there's the, the top matches are the, the national championships. And I was videotaping all those. And uh, meanwhile, the NRA calls me and says, hey, you know, we want you to come out and shoot our, our rifle championships. So <laughs> they, I went out to Camp Perry and I shot the. Uh, high power rifle championships. I made a, I met a guy out there called David Tubb, who's the best rifle shooter in the world. Interviewed him, did a whole bunch of stuff with him. Went back. He and I liked each other, and he liked what I was doing, and he wanted to be more famous. And, and I said, "Look, why don't I come out to your house and I'll do a whole video series with you?" We went out there. We did, uh, we did a video called the One Mile Shot, which he did. He wow. uh, lives. He lives on a seven mile square plot of land in Canadian Texas, just outside of Canadian Texas, which is out in the middle, in the panhandle, the middle of nowhere, but it was homesteaded by his grandfather or great grandfather, I guess. Um, and it's seven miles square. And as you drive on this property out to a shooting range, he's got a shooting range on it. As you drive out there, there's these oil wells just bumping. I said, are they zeros? He said, no, no, we just lease them. We lease the land. They come out and they just, they service them and they just give us a check. (laughs) I said, well, that's a great life, isn't it? (laughs) So he said, yeah, that's why I I devote my time to shooting. And we just get a check every month. So I thought that was pretty funny. So anyways, uh, the the key was, though, again, it's about the people I met, about the things I did and how I utilized it and how I utilized the equipment. So early on, you know, with the videotape equipment, you know, and, and doing that show, TV Shoppers, I was providing a service for people. And, uh, and I was doing a good job at it, you know, and, and, I was, and people liked it and, and, and everything. But I knew that that was kind of short-lived, you know. Uh, and I saw the people in the video business, and they were, you know, just starting to spring up as the video thing started to be hot. And, we were, you know, we were all competing for your corporate video to do a, or product video or to, you know, some commercial work as well. You know, let me do a commercial for you. And the problem with that is that, you know, while you would get uh, that business, you would do that work. And meanwhile, once it's over, you had to go do it all again. It was just like, your, just like uh, your dad being a doctor. You got to keep. That's exactly right. That's exactly the point that I was going to get to is all you're doing is making money when you're in front of people. You have to have a product to sell to make, you know, that life a little bit more comfortable. So that's where I I, I spun myself off and I started looking at the video, you know, world going, you know, it's selling the product. So I became very industrious and in uh, the span of 10 years produced about 300 instructional videos on firearms that we still sell today. Uh, and, uh, they are still generating revenue and, uh, I'm still selling sometimes, uh, 1986 USPSA. <laughs> Every once in a while, I want to buy that, but they're there, buying. There's some the great clips. Lenny, there's some great clips of you on YouTube 
that I oh, found I all, all yeah. the way back to, you know, really early ones. You've got this machine gun. You look like you're in an 80s action movie. You've got, I mean, it's great. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. How, how did you, so this, so this sounds like another big transition. So you're into this where you're making the VHS tapes, but then you at some point transitioned into actually selling and manufacturing parts and accessories yeah. and firearms themselves. And that seems like a very different industry for a guy who's kind of a pitch man, a branded, you know, your brand was what sold. You were into multimedia. How did you get the, the sort of credibility and, and be willing to take the risk to go into the manufacturing side, the actual products themselves? Well, one of the guys that I did business with was Bill is Bill Wilson, and he's still alive and has a very successful business with 1911 parts and pieces. So the story about Bill is that he uh, was in Arkansas, Berryville, Arkansas, tiny little town. He would he was involved. I met him at the at the pistol tournaments at the Bianchi Cup at the uh, Steel Challenge at the USPSA. So Bill was a competition shooter, and uh, Bill's father owned a pawn shop. And Bill uh, was uh, working with his father, fixing the watches that came in that were not working. So Bill would open the watches up, you know, notice, oh, that uh, thing's bent or that thing's worn out. Let me replace it and get the watch to work. They would sell the watch for a lot more money. So Bill had a, a tinkering background. Bill was you know, inquisitive and uh, he was uh, good with his hands, good with tools and, uh, and was tinkering, you know, fixing stuff. So then other things that came into the pawn shop, you know, toasters and stuff. Well, I said, hey, we got this toaster. It doesn't work, but make it work and we'll sell it for three times as much as we paid for it, you know. So um, Bill was a competition shooter on the weekends. And uh, 1911s, where everybody was shooting 1911s at that time. And so Bill decided that, uh, you know, he would shoot 1911 because everybody was. But the 1911s jammed a bunch. They were notoriously malfunction a lot. They were not well put together. They were uh, loose and sloppy and parts and pieces didn't really work well. I mean, they shot bang, bang, bang. But when you really wanted to get into competition shooting and shoot a lot, shoot fast, they just didn't work all the time. So Bill, being the tinkerer he is, sat down and looked at the gun and said, well, gee, okay, this does this and that does that. Okay, well, what if I did this? I'll make it work better. And so Bill made his gun work better. And Bill started winning competitions. How about that? So people started to notice, well, what the hell are you doing over there? Your gun's not, not breaking, not, not malfunctioning. Because when you're shooting, you're shooting for speed and for accuracy. So if your gun malfunctions, you're supposed to clear the malfunction and continue shooting. That takes up time, which it interferes with your score. So Bill started tinkering with guns. And all of a sudden, people said, well, hey, can you fix my gun? And Bill would say, sure, I can fix your gun. Send it in. Uh, I'll or I'll take it. He was doing a local stuff. I'll take it home and I'll fix it for you. And then I'll return it. And you can go shoot. So he started doing that. All of a sudden, Bill is a gunsmith. Hmm. Now, Bill didn't go to college. Bill, you know, just was working for his dad, was, you know, just working and looking at stuff. So Bill uh, started fixing guns and people all, and this whole competition shooting thing was kind of rising up. And Bill started getting people from around the country saying, hey, can you fix my gun? And Bill said, sure, send it in. So Bill was fixing guns. And then Bill said, you know what? That part in that 1911 doesn't work as good because of this. Let me have one made and I'll fix that problem and make it work better. Mm. So he started having parts made and, and then he would install them into the, the guns that he built. He would make the parts and install them. 
and uh, then guns, you know, versus trying to fix the parts because sometimes they were not fixable. So he started to really understand the 1911 handgun and really understood what needed to be done. And he started making some pieces and parts. And um, uh, now I know all this because I went out and did several videos with Bill. Uh, I mean, like 12 or 13 videos with Bill. Uh, so we, we did a lot. We spent a lot of time together up into his house, into his shop. And, you know, and, and Bill has generated a 30 to $40 million business out of this whole thing. The story is like this, though. So he's a gunsmith. And he, all of a sudden, now, literally, he would have so many guns to do that, you know, he couldn't get through them. So he hired some more gunsmiths. And they all of a sudden, they still had more guns. He had, you know, three or four gunsmiths helping him. And he's trying to do guns. He's doing guns at all hours. And, you know, just can't get, you can't get through them fast enough. And there's literally, people are waiting six to 12 to 18 months to get their gun back. Wow. Hard to believe, isn't it? But... He was building guns that worked, and people would wait. Okay, that's all right. Here's my money, and then he'd be charging thousands of dollars to fix these guns. So he's taking these, you know, 1911s and making them into, uh, you know, race guns is what we call them, and, and charging thousand dollars, and uh, you know, and making all this money. And, and one day, you know, his wife says to him, and he says, she says, well, you know, Bill, we have so many guns, you're never going to get caught up. And she said, why don't we just sell them the parts, and they can, you know, someone else can put them in. And Bill said, no, no, I don't want to do that. I'll lose all this gunsmith business. She said, yeah, but you can sell more parts than you can sell time building guns. <laughs> and he's resisted and resisted. And she, she tells the story better than he does because he's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. But she's like, yeah, he didn't want to do it, but I made him do it. You know? And so all of a sudden, you know, she made him do it because you know, why do you like that sometimes? And they see a little better picture. And so he um, starts selling a branded parts. He starts selling parts to other gunsmiths. And that's why I went out to help. Uh, we did a series of videos on how to install the parts hmm. so that the other gunsmiths would do it right. And his business took off. So, so, so by, by from, basically giving away for free by showing people how on these videos or almost free, the part of the business that he was reliant on on first, he, he was able to, to realize something a lot more scalable and uh, sell That's sell exactly parts. right. And so all of a sudden he's got this robust business selling pieces and parts and full guns and still people are still sending guns into him. I mean, he had more guns now than ever before because (laughs) he was getting wider. His brand was getting wider and wider because people would see his packages in stores. Oh, Wilson. Okay. 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 Yeah. Well, let me go. I'll call him up. Hey, can you build a gun for me? I I don't know. I want you to do it. I want you guys to do it. I don't want like, I want you to do it. So he got more guns. So uh, I, I observed that process and i observed what was happening with his business and i said wow you know that's pretty darn exciting and meanwhile we're still selling videotapes and so uh the, the the segue to that is is after watching how him go through this whole process how huge his business was and how profitable it was and how much money he was making and and what he was doing uh in about 1988 now uh glock was introduced into the united states the glock handgun and the Glock handgun at that time was a plastic handgun, still is, I mean, was the first plastic handgun that was widely introduced. And people hated it. It was ugly. It was never going to catch on. It was stupid. It's, oh, it's ridiculous. No way. Can't do anything with it. It's just, it's an ugly duckling gun. It's ridiculous. You know, people just hated it. However, some people saw the benefit of it. And it did not malfunction right out of the box. Whereas a Colt handgun you'd get, if you really wanted to shoot and not malfunction, you'd have to send it to Bill or get some parts put into it. All of a sudden, 
you know, it was a, a wait period and all this other stuff. Here, here's a brand new gun, plastic frame, held 17 rounds, you know, whereas the 1911 holds nine or eight or nine, depending on what magazine you have. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, here's a gun that works and it's $499. And oh my gosh, it started to catch on. And I kind of saw that and I got my hands on one. And so I did a video on the Glock on disassembly reassembly called complete Glocks back in like 1989. And it was really successful because people were mesmerized by the gun and, and no one knew how to operate at that time. And, and so I kind of self-taught myself how to tear it apart, put it back together and did it three or four times. And then I did it on camera and we saw a ton of videos. I mean, and so meanwhile, here I am, you know, basically from 83 with the first Bianchi cup, 1990, I have a full-blown production company. You know, our revenues are around $2 million. Uh, I've got, you know, a studio where, you know, we're still doing outside service for people because we're looking for that income. But we have uh, 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 our own cameras, and we have our own. We have got had 100 duplicating machines. We're duplicating videotapes. You know, you'd push a button, they'd all go clunk, and they all go on. You know, it's really fascinating. And then we'd label and package them, and we we're, you know, we had an art department, and we were, you know, storing them and warehousing them. And I had all the, I was, I had, you know, 200 videos or so. Where, at that where time. were you mostly and, uh, advertising the videos? Still in like gun magazines and th places like yeah, that? Yeah, gun magazines, yeah. and yeah, and we were selling to, uh, we were going to shows, and we were, you know, uh, getting some retailers to uh, buy and resell them. And uh, you know, by then the videos had dropped down to 29.95 and 1995. Uh, because that was a going rate, but the margins were still good. We had a dollar, a dollar, two dollar item that we we're you know selling for nineteen and twenty nine ninety five. So we were we were making a lot of money. My bankers used to look at the, uh, uh, at the you know the, our, our financials and go, "What are you doing over there?" You know, because the margins were <laughs> so good. You know? I mean, really, it's like, "What the? Are you guys laundering money or what?" You know, no, no, we're selling videotapes. You know, and a lot of it was servicing income too. We still were, you know, we we're, were you know still providing because I had. Here's the other interesting thing. I had a whole bunch of equipment that I acquired to do all this video stuff. And then on the off days, I'd rent it to people. So I made a whole bunch of money renting cameras and renting the studio and renting lights, renting microphones, all this stuff that I bought to, to create stuff. There are all these other video camera guys out there, all these newbies coming into the business. They didn't have the high-end equipment or they didn't have any equipment at that time. And uh, we actually had edit suites. We had two edit suites that I, I had built. Uh, we used to charge uh, $200 an hour for so that's before computers now. Wow. So keep that in mind. Before Apple and before Final Cut Pro, uh, destroyed that business. I mean, literally destroyed it. So, but but yeah, but it was interesting. I used to say this to people. I say, you know, uh, it's uh, it, at this point right now, it's all about who has the most money uh, can you know have the most success. But I used to tell people, I say, look, it's really about the creativity because that it's it's not about all that money with the equipment. It's about what you can do with it. And, you know, so it's all about what you can produce and, and what you can create. Content creation is really the, the, the secret. So, you know, I did that Glock video and then um, it was really successful. I thought, well, yeah, I got to do another one because this thing is hot right now. So I, I did another one called customizing your Glock. And in it, I showed a whole bunch of pieces and parts about how to customize your Glock, how to make it more of a race gun, you know, because people, you know, started making pieces and parts for the Glock. And, uh, and, and the Glock is like plug and play. You can actually sit and install that stuff yourself. You don't need to be at gunsmith, quote unquote. So um, what I did from there is I actually um, sold that videotape on uh, called Complete Glock. And people started to call up and say, hey, can I buy that piece? Hmm. And, you know, I had people on the phone. You know, I had like, you know, two girls answering the phone, taking orders. And, and they say, hey, he wants to buy that, that, uh, that three and a half pound connector you showed in the video. I said, take his order. 
<laughs> we'll we'll find it. We'll get it. Take an order. So we start taking orders for pieces and parts, and that's how the whole thing started. To grow. So you're selling, uh, and this is this is what I call uh, selling stone soup from, from this old children's story. You're, you're basically selling things, trusting that you're going to be able to deliver, but even before you had it, they're they're asking you for this, and you're like, okay, well, I don't have all those now, but if we've got the demand, I can go figure out how to make it work. That's exactly what happened. Is I, you know, I said I know I, I knew I knew who manufactured them. I knew I could buy them for a, a price less than the retail price. And I figured, hey, I'll just start selling those pieces and parts, you know, I mean, and and the people forced us into it. You know, they actually, you know, start you know, calling up and saying, I want to buy this, I want to buy that. So we created a catalog with videotapes in it and some pieces and parts. You're, I mean, and your timing had, is, is amazing, too, because as, you know, today's world, you can't really sell the video stuff. So you're giving away yeah, absolutely. On, for free. I mean, I go to GlockStore.com. You've got all these great instructional videos. You're still getting on camera there doing these great shooting things. But that's all the stuff you give away for free, and then you can sell the products there. So that the old model of just selling the VHSs, the fact that you added these parts and and you know customizations, I mean, you really you really got a a, a beautiful you you sort of morphed with the industry, I, I think, in a really smooth way, or at least it appears. Smooth well, you're right. The, the writing was on the wall, you know, in uh, in the early '90s. You know, you could start to see. I think Apple computers, you know, came out with uh, the the first computer and Final Cut Pro, and then the cameras really started to drop in price. You know, we used to shoot the Bianchi Cup with uh, cameras that cost thirty thousand um, dollars. You know, all of a sudden, there's ten thousand dollar cameras, which was like, wow, okay. And I, and I started realizing, you know what? There's going to just be a whole bunch of people with with uh, video cameras and a whole bunch of people running around. You, you try to go get a corporate job, and which used to pay, you know, uh, fifteen thousand dollars, and there's a guy going to do it out of his house for fifteen hundred. Hmm. Same thing, you know. And and it was it wasn't bad. And he was going to college or whatever, you know, learning, you know, video skills or he was sitting in his house, you know, uh, practicing and becoming, uh, uh, you know, uh, very skilled and proficient to the point where you couldn't argue that you were going to do a better job. You know, he's going to do a good job, too. But I will tell you this. The one thing that always separated me from everybody else was the writing, the ability to write content. And that's why I go back. I, I continue to thank my uh, uh, high school uh, English teacher uh, who was very adamant that we did things well and we did things right. And, and she actually really taught us how to write. And I will, uh, again, point out that a lot of people who went through her are in positions of uh, content creation. One of the guys is uh, a writer up in Hollywood. He uh, uh, writes a bunch of comedy shows up there. Uh, you know, I went to high school with him, Matt Bernstein. He's a very successful uh, writer up there. So, you know, it, it's interesting. Content creation is, is really it. Uh, but we segue, you know, from uh, the uh, uh, the video only. And we, what, what I did is in, I think, 1992, 93, right in that ballpark, is I, I actually came out with the first Glock store catalog. And that was, uh, uh, so I took the gun video and I did gun video catalog. And I had a whole separate videos of all the videos I produced. And they were all over the board, you know, gun cleaning and gun maintenance and shooting this and shooting that and all the different competitions and, you know, just everything you'd imagine, you know, with, with guns. And then I did um, uh, the Glock store catalog, which was a smaller catalog because we didn't have all of stuff at that time. And we started to, you know, send it to our list. And people responded, and, and as the Glock became more popular, uh, they responded even more, and, and we added more things. And so uh, at one point, I noticed uh, maybe uh, about, I guess, uh, late 1999, 2000, 
that I started noticing that, wow, you know, our sales were increasing, but I, I, I saw that, well, you see, we're spending a lot of money out of house to buy in these parts and, and resell them. I said, you know, what if I start making this stuff? Mm. You know, I mean, it's not that hard, you know, I mean, I mean, I've been to their shop. I know what they do. You know, it's like, okay, well, you know, what if I went ahead and, and, uh, start making it. So I actually started to, uh, I hired a machine shop out of house first and I actually had a uh, machine shop start making some of the pieces and parts that we, um, that we, you know, were selling and my margins were better because now it's going directly to a manufacturer versus directly to a, a guy who's kind of a manufacturer brand reseller and, you know, who was jacking the price up a little bit for that. But I was now going to this guy who's just running machines and, and, uh, I would buy the raw materials and he would make them. And then he, he would give me back the, the finished product and then I would package it, label it and our margins were better. So we started making more and more money. And our margins got better and we, our volume got bigger and, and all of a sudden, you know, here it is now 2002 and I realized that, wow, I'm spending a lot of money with these machine shops. <laughs> Just looking at the bottom line, oh my gosh, what if I bought some machines? And so we bought some machines and now I have uh, uh, eight CNC machines and another one coming. So we'll have nine here uh, by the end of the year. Uh, that are, you know, making pieces and parts uh, for Glock handguns. That's amazing. And it, so well, I know I know we have to, to wrap up taking a lot of your time, but one thing I want to ask you, I, a lot of young people are worried about, they don't want to create content or put things out there because they're afraid that people will say, oh, you're not an expert. And from your story, it sounds like you, you were filming these people who were expert shooters, but pretty soon you were the one on camera showing people tips and techniques. Did you ever fear or feel pressure or blowback that, hey, wait a minute, you're not a competition shooter. Uh, you're just some guy with a camera. Like, was that ever a struggle for you? How do, how do you sort of deal with that accusation? Well, it's a great question because, you know, certainly we all have our own fears and doubts in our minds at all times. You know, I mean, you know, uh, I would say, yes, I, I had those thoughts. I thought, well, gee, I'm not really that guy, but you know what? I can present it better than they can. <laughs> and I know it better than they can because I'm, I just, I just know it. I just, I've seen it and I've, I've studied it. I, I, I think, in fact, I can do it now. You know, I mean, I, I'm a pretty accomplished shooter myself. Uh, I, I watched so some videos. Say, you look like an amazing shooter to me. But, but I'm sure when you started yeah. this, uh, this competitive shooting, it was, it, there was, there was some, uh, you know, fear uh, in a sense. But I, I always say this, you know, um, two, two things. One is you just have to do it. If it, when it's done, I mean, I've had, I've had so many conversations with people. Uh, in my video career, especially who'd come in and say, well, I want to, I want to produce a video on so-and-so. And then they, you know, they overcomplicate everything. They make it such a big deal. It's like, well, just do it. Don't, it doesn't have to be perfect. You want to make it, you want to do the best job you can, but make sure you get it done. Invariably, almost every time I shoot a video, every time I do something, you know, I'll, I'll think, oh, gee, I could have done it better. Oh, I wish I would have, you know, oh, you'll, you know, and, and I think that's the same with everybody who's, uh, you know, in front of a camera or on stage or, uh, or, you know, producing something that's, oh, I wish I would have, I wish I could have, I could have done this, could have done that. It's never perfect, but invariably six months later, if I happen to watch it and I say, well, oh, that's not bad. Well, you know what? <laughs> that's pretty good. You know, I'm pretty happy with that. And, and so I think, you know, I'm lucky in the sense that, you know, my stuff turns out pretty good. I, you know, I've got a lot of compliments, and a lot of positive feedback on it. And I'm very lucky and very fortunate with that. But I have to tell people, you know, that nothing's going to happen unless you do it. Mm -hmm. Whether it's writing a book, 
creating an ad, doing a blog, doing a podcast, you know, making a video to, to brand yourself and to get yourself out there. You know, people respect it when it's done. Everybody, how many times have you met someone who says, yeah, I, I want, I'm going to write a book. I'm gonna, I, I want to have a book idea. I want to do a book. It's kind of like the Hollywood thing. You know, I've got a script. I've got a script, but it's never there. <laughs> they just talk about it. You know, that's, it's, it's, that's, that's old and that's nasty. And that's, that's the stuff that feels bad. C- compared you know, to someone who says, doing it. you know, I've got five books. The first four sucked, but they got a little better each time. I mean, that, I think that's also underestimated is the way that you get better is by doing it. Make that first one, and then you'll 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 oh, know absolutely. how to improve. You know. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, there's a good story I, I like to say about um, uh, Roger Hedgecock, uh, who was a, a radio talk show host here in San Diego. He was a mayor of San Diego, and um, he you know he, he ended up being a talk show host uh, afterwards. And in his first couple months on air. I would cringe. And I was kind of in the radio business at that time. That was way back then. And all of us would cringe because he was so bad, so nervous, so just, uh, you know, uh, just unpolished. But he got himself, he just worked through it. And he was a smart guy, you know, I mean, he just worked through it. And he ended up, you know, he ended up co-hosting for Russ Limbaugh many times. He, he got a national show and made a ton of money. Uh, it's just, you just got to do it. You will get better with practice no matter what it is. And, and it, whether you're, you know, uh, like I said, doing a radio show or even your blog show or just, just trying videos, you just have to do it. Writing an article, just do it, put it out there next. Don't yes. worry about the naysayers. You know, there's, you know, there's always people who are going to, you know, I don't even read the comments anymore because so there's always some guy out there who says, well, ah, he's a bozo, you know? So, okay. So what? Yeah. Next. Don't buy my product. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, next, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we, we've got a successful business. We're doing well. We're happy with where we're at. I want to go farther. Do I, am I satisfied? No way. You know, I mean, will I ever be satisfied? Probably not. So but that's, so, I think, a good thing. So I have two Two final questions for you. One is, how have you managed the the transition? I mean, it's obvious that you still are a front man. You're still doing videos. Your your brand is is very powerful and important part of what you do. And it seems like you really enjoy that aspect. But it's obvious you've got a ton of employees. You've got this big operation. So from being the guy on the camera and the guy doing most of the selling individually, making the deals to be in the guy who's managing a whole team. Has that been a hard transition? Is, is management something that you've had to, to learn? Yes. And it's, and, and still learning. And luckily, uh, you know, there are some good people around me, uh, to be honest. Um, you know, we have 80 people now, 85 people, I think. And, um, that is a full-time job. Uh, you know, luckily my wife now, you know, is, is, is involved in the business. She's much better with people and relationships than I am. Uh, and, and, and luckily so. Um, and so we do divide some of that work and, and take me out of some of that. I, it, it's very difficult to try to do both. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was much easier to operate this company when there were 10 of us. And, um, uh, you know, I was directly connected to everybody and, and everybody felt to be, you know, that they were part of the, this, this growing team of people and this growing team uh, that was making this business happen. That was doing some unique and exciting things. It was it was a lot more, I guess, cohesive. You know, all of us were doubting. Now I've got a woman who's been working with me for 20 years, hmm. and some days I don't see her. And, you know, I know it wears on her, too. Yeah. You know, she doesn't feel quite as connected to me as, as we were. 
You know, she's been instrumental in helping us get to where we're at. And I tell her that as much as I can, but still there's, you know, I, I can see a little bit of sadness in her eyes that we're not quite as close as we once were because I just physically don't see her that much. I mean, the place now we're in a 45,000 square foot building and, uh, and, uh, we've got, you know, all these people running around and some days, you know, I, I mean, I go from here to there to there to here. And, and all of a sudden I, I, I don't see her. I don't see everybody every day, every day. So it is a hard part. It is a hard challenge. Uh, um, you know, I enjoy the business. I enjoy the people. I, I enjoy the process. And I think that's important, uh, to, uh, ensure your success, no matter what you do. Uh, but, um, you know, keep in mind that it, it really is all about the people. It's always about the people. And, and I hope, you know, people who, you know, all your listeners who've heard this story, uh, you know, see that my, you know, if you want to call it rise to success or, or, or rise to where I'm at was basically about the people. And I want to say it one more time. It's, it, it's no matter how small or meaningless a job is in your mind, do it well because the people around you will notice and they will say, Hey, I want you to do this for me. I want this. I want that guy to be part of me. I mean, just look at what happened is, you know, you know, as I made an impression on the guy at the uh, Farrell's ice cream, he in turn allowed me to work as a waiter who then I made an impression upon one of my customers who said, Hey, you've got a good voice. You should come down to the radio station. I went there and, you know, made a good impression and, you know, kind of learned about some stuff. They let me do a whole bunch of neat stuff. And then I met another guy who took me to another radio station who then I worked really hard and did some really, you know, good stuff. And I made some money for that guy. I I helped him along the way. He in turn, you know, taught me how to be a salesman and how to uh, uh, learn the sales game and, 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 and how to operate a, a, a small business in a sense. And, and then, you know, from there I, I, I met, um, uh, the guy at, uh, at Coca-Cola who, you know, liked me and, and, and enjoyed what I did and took me, you know, along with him on to Cox Cable. And then I did my little show and, and, you know, made some money, but I, I worked really hard and I hustled and I, and I met the guy with the shooting range who then turned me on to John Bianchi. And then John Bianchi, you know, got me over to the Bianchi cup and I did all this thing with all these uh, uh, competition shooters and all these top shooters and, and learned that business. And, and so it's really about as you step through life, you're going to meet people. And, and I, I'm a believer that, you know, if you have a vision, you have a goal, you know where you want to go and you, you focus and concentrate and you work hard, those people will show up mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll, you just have to recognize that they're there and they're there to help you. And you're there to help them because every one of the people that I met, I solved their problem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Create, the guy creating value is, is he wanted, he wanted someone working Fridays and Saturday nights because no one else wanted to. Yeah, that was his problem. I don't have anybody who's going to work. I'm having trouble filling those slots. I said, I'll work for, I'll work. And he said, come on in. You know, John Bianchi wanted someone to put his show on TV. I'll do it. <laughs> I don't know how, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> you know? So, you know, that's what you have to remember. You, you gotta, you gotta, like you, you guys profess. It's not about a resume. It's not about a college degree. It's about what you can do right now to solve my problem. Oh man, you can solve my problem. I can help you with yours. You're getting me all hyped up. This is more inspirational than those Sunday uh, 30 minute specials you would sell to the churches. (laughs) So Lenny, you know, I'm a a firm believer in what you guys are doing. You guys have a great program because it, it, you know, the, the, the resume thing is overbuilt. I mean, we hire people here and you know, we look at these resumes and it's like, ah, you know, so what, what have you done? Yeah. You know, show me who you are. What can you do? I hired a guy who came in, you know, and, and, you know, he said, look, I can help you with the social media. 
I can help you get, you know, uh, in, in, uh, in Facebook and, and I'll work that Facebook thing with you and I'll work this with you. And so, you know, and, and of course my son, Derek, as you know, really was instrumental in, in putting that program together. But since Derek is working with you, we hired a guy to do the day to day stuff. And he came in and said, I'll, I can do it. I know how to do that. So boom, you're hired. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if he went to college. Yeah. <laughs> Cause, cause no once, once he's made you a value proposition, that's more important than his degree, then it doesn't even matter at that point. You know, he's solving my problem. And I think that's one of the things, if you're a young guy and you're a young woman uh, looking for a job, you need to go in and ask the person, what is your, what's your pain point? What's, what, what do you need to happen? What do you need to happen in this business? What can I do for you to solve your problem? Or even more importantly is do your research and figure out what this company is all about and then go in and say, here's what I can help you do. Yes. Yes. Specific. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Lenny, yeah. I, I got to ask you one more question on how you balance. You're obviously a highly productive person. You're also in great shape, by the way. I've seen you shooting. I want my arms to look like that when I shoot a gun. Um, <laughs> you, you have fitness, your business, and I know you, your family is important to you. I know you're close and you spend a lot of time with your family. What are your, do you have like routines or habits or an approach that helps you kind of balance your life in any way? I am a habitual person, and I will say this, that um, I, I, have a, I, have a, I lead a boring life in many ways, uh, and this is really important, and, and this is, I think, something you, you, to, to keep in mind. When I was younger, you know, in my 20s, um, I was not a big bar person, and I was not a big party person. I, you know, I'm, I like to be, I like I like to be alone a lot. You know, I like to think. Uh, I I rarely listen to the radio uh, when I'm in a car. I, I I try to think about what I want to do and where I want to go. The hardest work anyone anyone can do it really is concentrated thought. Uh, and so I, I I would say to you that yes, I have a routine. I you know I, I try to go to bed at ten o'clock. You know, I mean, there's nothing going on afterwards. Well, you know, I mean, sometimes it's 11 when we're out or doing something where we go to an event. But usually by 10 o'clock, I'm upstairs and I'm getting ready for bed. And by 1030, the lights are off and I'm, I'm you know, I'm out. I um, I will say this as I, I wake up at 630. You know, I mean, not an early riser. You know, 630 is not early by any means. My dad still gets up at five and, uh, uh, you know, he's 84, but he still does it because that's what he does. Um, and he's funny because he says, Oh, you know, that's not a whole lot of time left, <laughs> so, but, uh, so he doesn't want to miss any moment. But, uh, uh, so I get up at six 30. I, uh, I, you know, have a, a, a good breakfast. You know, we do the bulletproof coffee thing, you know, still, uh, we, uh, 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 I get into work at like eight 30, you know I mean? And I mean, it's just like every day, it's like a clockwork, you know? Uh, and then I'll work and I'll basically, uh, go home and I work out. I work out three to four days a week, uh, with weights. We have a gym at home we build a gym at home because, you know, I just felt it was so, uh, you know, I, I like to work out. Going to the gym is fun, but at the same time, it takes too much time. And a lot of times it's kind of social to the point where, you know, <laughs> you have a lot of conversation and not a lot of working out and you're waiting for machines and you're talking to people and all of a sudden, you know, your workout, you know, is an hour and a half versus, uh, the, the workout schedule I do is, you know, is that we, you know, we're basically about 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, there's very little rest between sets. So you do a set and it's a 30 to 60 second rest. Uh, it's not, you know, five minutes. It's it's So I can do a whole bunch in 30 minutes and 40 minutes. I'm basically done. Uh, two of those days I'll do sprints. Uh, that's, you know, very important to continue uh, and maintain mobility. 
Uh, I believe that, you know, all this physical exercise works your brain as well. You know, you, you know, I mean, I was, I'm a boy scout, I've always been a boy scout and, you know, as a, a sound uh, body starts with a, a sound mind starts with a sound body, you know? So, uh, I, you know, I grew up with that, that philosophy and I still believe it. You know, I, I, I like to throw ball, I like to play ping pong, keep my brain fresh. Uh, you know, I, I like to catch a ball, you know, so my son and I, you know, we'll try to throw football or baseball. I think that's very good for your, your, your neuroplasty to mm-hmm. continue to keep your brain alive and to regenerate. I'm a hell of a ping pong player. I, I, player, I beat Derek and I beat uh, Lenny all the time. <laughs> I still beat my son to ping pong. And I'm going to remind good. Derek of that. That's great. <laughs> they're, they're good. You know, they're good ping pong players, but I'm, I'm, I'm really good, you know, and I'm still good. And, and uh, I don't, there's not many people that I know that beat me. I, I haven't lost ping pong no matter where I go. I don't play a whole bunch against anybody else. We just have a table at home and when people come over, uh, if they are a game, I'll play them. So, you know, I think, you know, and we eat well. I don't, you know, I don't smoke. I don't drink. You know, I, you know, I'll have a beer every once in a while. You know, I'm not like, you know, I'm not against it. It's not like a religious thing. It's just, uh, you know, alcohol is kind of poisonous. Uh, so, you know, there's no need to, you know, shorten my lifespan or, or, you know, and plus I'm very, uh, uh, I guess, uh, I, I'm very, I, I feel all that stuff. Any, you know, any alcohol, I, I feel it the next day. I feel terrible. You know, I yeah. just, you know, so I, I don't like that. I like to be sharp and crisp and, uh, you know, so, uh, it's, there's the balance is to me that, you know, I'm, I'm into, you know, health, beauty, and longevity. You know I mean? I like to be, um, uh, healthy and I like to be, uh, vital. And, uh, so we, we eat real food. We don't eat anything out of a package. Typically, you know, everything is alive or has been alive, you know, relatively uh, a, a little while ago, you know, there's nothing that's too dead, you know, so uh, very little sugar. I mean, I've go days without having any processed sugar, uh, you know, that I know of. The problem is there's sugar in just about everything, you know, any kind of bread you eat, there's sugar in, you know, but I don't ever put sugar on anything. I, you know, uh, never put sugar in coffee, uh, no chemical stuff, no chemical um, uh, additives in uh, like, you know, creamers or any of that stuff. We are into, uh, I drink raw milk, you know, raw milk, real raw milk, not pasteurized, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, with, I eat the full egg, you know, I don't just eat egg whites, you know, we, uh, so I think that's, you know, part of it is, is, you know, you can't out train a bad diet mm-hmm. and a bad diet is also alcohol. You know, you think about, you know, uh, uh, a shot of liquor and it's basically, you know, uh, uh, five or six bushels of, uh, of wheat. You know, and so you know, distilled down into that, you know, that's, you know, all that energy is right there in that little shot of liquor, you know, so there's a lot of calories in that stuff that, you know, are wasted calories. They don't really do anything for you. They don't grow muscle. So I, I try to eat food to grow muscle and try to uh, uh, work out to grow muscle and uh, try to, uh, uh, you know, play games and sports that'll keep my brain young. And I try to read too. I guess reading is actually one of my other things. You know, I I try to read on a regular basis to uh, keep my vocabulary and my mind uh, thinking and, uh, and, you know, try to read different things, different uh, topics. always trying to learn something. I guess that's the other thing is I want to learn. And so those are just my, my lifestyle points. I, you know, I enjoy people, enjoy the business. I enjoy working. So, you know, to me, I don't mind coming in here Sunday night and and coming in here at, you know, four o'clock and staying until 10. To me, that's the that's the time I get the most done. No one's here. I'm I'm, I'm in a zone of thinking. I give myself the opportunity to uh, to kind of settle in, and then I create stuff. I build catalogs. I write copy. I think about websites. I think about the direction of the company, and I think that's what most people don't do in their lives. They don't give themselves the time to think about where they want to go, and then make an action plan to get there. 
So, and that action plan has to be written down and I think it has to be written by hand versus typed in a computer. I think it's much more powerful, much more emotional and much more uh, connected. So uh, if I, if I can teach anybody anything or they want to really think about, well, how do I get from here to there? Well, take the time to be alone and don't be bothered by TV or the internet or uh, anything else. And, uh, and just think about yourself and think about your life and think about what you want to look at, look like. I will say this real quickly. Uh, when we were, um, uh, 12 years old, my father took us to a, uh, took, you know, I was 12, uh, took us to a, uh, the whole family to a civil mind control class. Uh, I felt that that was very uh, influential in my life, uh, much about creative visualization, really visualizing who you want to be, what you want to look like, what your body wants to look like, what your mind wants to look like. You look inside yourself. You look inside your body, you look at, you project yourself into the future. You project where you want to be, what you want to have. I will tell you this, that, um, uh, when I met my wife, uh, at a pistol tournament in 1986, I told her that, uh, we were going to get married. We we're going to live in San Diego and my, our kids are going to go to Torrey Pines. They're both going to be uh, quarterbacks on the football team. And all that came true. Uh, and this is, you know, I mean, you know, she's still freaks out about that. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I'm a Quite very a big believer of, of making plans. You know, and uh, and and you know, writing those plans down and making and having goals, and uh, you know, sharing your goals with people close to you, but you know, keeping a lot of that close to your body too. You know, because you know, uh, you, you want to internalize all that stuff and and know where you want to go every day. I you know, when I drive to work, I review a goal sheet. I mean, it's it's very basic stuff that you know it works. It, I will say all that stuff works. Visualization, creative visualization. It, goal setting it works that the you know, power and, of that repetition over time that that compounding effect i imagine is just well and and yeah, and the, the real secret to all that stuff is to feel the emotion on the other side of accomplishment hmm. what's it feel like to get it done how does it feel how does it look in your mind how does it look in your life wow i'm i am there and, you know, I, I, it, it's every day, it's, it's a new challenge and every day is a new emotion and every day is a new deal. But there's always, if you take the time to project yourself, you know, a year, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, what do you want? What do you want to look like? What do you want to feel like? What kind of, you know, uh, you know, what kind of car you want to drive? I mean, just, it's, it's crazy. Uh, you know, I, I, I can tell you another anecdote. I, I, you know, when I bought the first building, it was a million dollars. Um, I, I was renting a, a place, uh, and I used to drive by and I have the money, you know, I mean, I, and, and I had no money. I used to drive by and park my car in the spot. You know, they were closed. Of course, it was, you know, after hours, so they didn't think I was crazy. And I'd get out of my car and I'd walk to the door. I mean, just silly, crazy stuff. And I'd put my hand on the door and like, I was going to open it. It was locked, you know? And then I would, you know, I'd visualize myself being in that building. And then I, I actually, you know, it came available for sale. And uh, this is back when the real estate tanked back in um, 86, I think it was. And I, um, uh, I made a deal where they, uh, I got an interest, uh, a, a, no, a no down payment loan, 100% financing, which was unheard of at that time. And all I paid was the closing costs. And I got in that building. So, I mean, it's just silly stuff. But it, again, it was a person I met at the right time, right place. I happen to be there. Uh, and, you know, so is it coincidence? I don't think so. In my mind, in my life, there's no coincidence. Everything that I've 
thought about and wanted to do, I've been lucky enough to get there. Now I've thought about a whole bunch of this stuff too, trust me. And I haven't got it all, <laughs> but I've got a whole bunch of it and I feel pretty darn good about it. So I want your listeners to, you know, just take the time to be alone and to think about yourself and to think about where you want to go. So many people are distracted by so much stuff, you know, the internet and the TV and the radio and all these other people and these parties and all this stuff happening. And, you know, you get, and you're exhausted to the point where you can't think about who you are and who you want to be. And hence, if you can't think about it, it's not going to, no one else will either. And that's not going to happen. But bringing all these people, you know, these coincidences that came into my life, it was all about where do I want to go next? What do I want to do? And, and, you know, some of these are small steps, you know, Hey, when you're in radios, you really want to be in TV. Radio sales guys, you know, make X TV sales guys make X plus X because the numbers are taller. So that's all, you know, so, you know, when I was in radio, I said, everybody wanted to be in TV. I want to be in TV. I want to work at, uh, at CBS because those guys make a whole bunch of money. And all they do is take orders. You know, they don't really sell anything. They just, you know, they just manage the uh, customers and go to go play golf with people. Not really a hard sale game. You know, but, you know when you're in radio, you're, you're in the trenches. You're calling mom and poppers and all that stuff. When you're in uh, CBS and, you know, Ford wants to buy, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, scheduling and managing and, you know, making sure they're taken care of and going up and shaking hands and taking them to lunch and giving them free tickets and all that stuff, you know, so it's a whole different ball game. So everybody in radio wants to be in TV. And so that, that was my big goal at that point. I want to be in TV sales. I want to really be in TV sales. Well, I got there, but I kind of got there in a goofy way. I went to this Cox cable startup. Hmm. So, you know, that, and then, and you know, the rest of the story. So a, a lot of it is what you think about and just, I hope your people really, you know, understand that, you know, the, the, the college thing is kind of a racket and it's going to suck you away from a lot of your own thoughts because they're going to just interject their thoughts on top of you. And, uh, you know, if you need to take the time to think about who you are and where you want to go and then make an action plan to get there. Lenny, this has been, this is the longest interview we've ever done. And it, I did not feel like it. It flew by. This has been absolutely a deluge of just awesome stuff. Your story, all the pieces of wisdom in there. So thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to come and talk. Well, I'm sorry it went so long. Uh, I knew it was two hours. Wow. That, that's uh, but not, thank you. That's not a bad thing. And I am a believer in what you're doing and I support you hundred percent. Um, you know, I'm living proof and my son, Derek is living proof too. So, you know, I mean, he, you know, he went, you know, he went a year of college, you know, and he got on the Dean's list the first year and he told me, I hate it. And I said, <laughs> come on, you're in a great school. You got to just finish, you know, me being the dad, you know, yep. and cause I didn't, you know, I didn't finish college and I thought, but you should finish, just finish. It'll be good for you. And he's a dad, it's just awful. The, the things that are happening there and the people, the way it's working and the, everybody which wants to you know, drink all night long and smoke pot all the time. And, oh my gosh, I just can't stand it. You know, all that stuff. And I said, well, I, you know, I said, well, just, you know, just finish. And so then he tried to go back to second year for me and he just bombed it and just hated it. And I said, okay, I believe you. And <laughs> he has, uh, he's made himself uh, a success at every step of the way. And I'm super proud of him. And I'm super proud that he's uh, associated with you guys. Oh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here where we are without him. No, no question at all. And, and for a little content marketing plug, if you're really interested in video production, especially some of the stuff in the um, firearms industry, Glock store is one of our practice business partners. If you want to go work uh, with Lenny and help him, help him build his amazing company, apply to the practice program.
Check it out. Glockstore.com. You can learn more about what they do. Um, you can certainly find some of Lenny's great videos. I'm going to, I'm going to link to one. Derek made us a little montage of some of your clips from YouTube. I'll put it on the show notes. So <laughs> Lenny McGill, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Isaac. And good luck to you and uh, all your listeners. Thanks so much. You bet. Hey, if you're a fan of the show, do me a huge favor. Go to iTunes, give it a rating or a review. A rating is only a simple click of a button, or if you're on your phone, a tap of a finger. And it will help people find the show a lot easier. And if you have a little extra time, write a review. What you think about the show? Honest opinion. That stuff goes a long way in giving more exposure to the podcast. What do you get out of all of it? You get the pleasure of knowing that as more people start listening, you get to say, I was there first. 